1: Welcome to be. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I don't think I've done one of welcome, these. Welcome to big dog. Welcome to big, big dog. Don't lie down in the in the sand. They they run with the herd. It's a sheep dog <laughs> in this scenario. It's a herd of sheep,
0: English sheep dogs English sheep. Watching the flock Ow, in Highbury.
1: I'm the wolf, but I'm wearing dog's clothing, not sheep's clothing, because I like these sheep. I would never dress up. I would never wear sheepskin. That would be rude. Welcome to Be Good and Rewatch It, a Waypoint podcast where we take a close look at movies and television and examine their themes, craft, and relationship to our own lives Today, we are hoping to do things in a way, let's say, less badly than Emma, the lead character in Jane Austen's 1815 novel of the same name and the 2009 BBC miniseries directed by Jim O'Hanlon and starring Romola Garai as Emma, Johnny Lee Miller as Mr. Knightley, and Michael Gambon as uh, Mr. Woodhouse, Emma's father. Uh, and we are here to talk about that adaptation Today. Uh, I guess along with any other adaptations we want to, you've already done the Clueless podcast, Rob. Uh, Yeah. So that's one down. Another dozen or two to go. If the Wikipedia page is anything to, uh, to tell us.
0: Maybe we should hit that sense and sensibility uh, with, with Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman and then Emma Thompson. We
1: just. should just do Welcome to the Austin cast. Yeah, Austin yeah. on Austin. We've been through this. Uh, Rob Zachney is here with me. And that is it today. We're running a little light. Uh, everyone's kind of out of office in the wake of PAX. You can hear my voice has that special PAX uh rumble to it, uh post packs rumble to it. Uh we will be back next week with Pride and Prejudice episode six. Uh but we were trying to figure out like what do we want to do for Be Good and Rewatch It this week. And a couple of weeks ago I had recommended the two thousand nine BBC adaptation of uh of Emma, uh, which I had seen for the first time. And Rob, you had started to watch it and so we kind of thought, ah, eh, let's just push through. Is that Yeah, yeah
0: it, I mean, given that we started the series off with clueless to an extent, mm-hmm. I had initially thought about pitching everyone on the idea of revisiting the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow nineteen ninety six Emma which I haven't uh, seen, and I'm
1: curious to hear you pitch it to me maybe at the after we go through what what happens in the series
0: I think there's some interesting points of comparison uh for sure, but uh, I did I, I was hoping we might have a chance to dig into Emma because I think it's a really fascinating work, and there's and I think poses some interesting decisions about how you adapt it and what you choose to focus on. Like I think Emma is, can be made a very superficial, charming story. Like I don't want to say clueless is superficial. Clueless is cool. There's a lot going on in Mm -hmm. it, but I think faithfully adapting Austin's novel, you have a lot of threads of text you can choose to focus on as to what that story is about and what relationships you what aspects of relationships between characters you choose to focus on right and what you choose to emphasize is going to radically change how this same story feels
1: and and adaptation is a really broad thing i think we've been in a fairly tight mode of of adaptation i mean clueless obviously is pretty far out there but with pride and prejudice uh 1995 we've seen something that is fairly close to the novel in terms of uh, ad- ad- adapting dialogue, adapting text, adapting description into visual, right? Um, but there are some things pretty early on in this adaptation of Emma that stray in favor of producing a certain read on who Emma is as a character and bring the audience to a certain perspective, maybe more quickly than the text itself. Um, we should do a high-level recap. We're not going to do we're not going to fall no. in the trap and do seven episodes on Emma. We're not going to do... No,
0: but I, I was hoping we could talk about just the the introductory framing sequence, yes think is really interesting because to me the entire thing they have a lot of stage setting to do here Mm -hmm. uh, and they do a very good job of introducing some characters who are going to emerge into the middle of the story and and play a pretty pivotal role but it's very interesting to me just stylistically uh the opening of this adaptation feels uh I don't know, a little bit like pushing daisies, yeah. or uh, maybe like lemony snicket, uh, just kind of like twee dark. I guess is the way I put it. That that sounds like that sounds dismissive, but you know what I mean. Like uh, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on it, but like charming and gory esque, yeah. uh, being very light while also being kind of morbid and grand. which
1: is which is to some degree in line with I think what the work wants to get at in general right this is uh, emma is a is a very satirical work not that austin is is ever working in a non-satirical mode but i think it is very obvious the degree of satire that is being played at around questions of class and privilege and rank um and it opens i the, the novel i believe opens in the middle of one of emma the character's successes as a matchmaker she's at a wedding she's like haha i've done the damn thing like i've i've I knew how to read the situation and bring together these two other characters. The The 2009 adaptation opens with, like you said, an, an Edward Gorey-esque, like, um uh, summary of her childhood her birth the the situation in her in her confused and tossed around family uh, the, the absence of of other members of her family after the death of her mother and the, the ways in which uh you know her sister goes to move to a different place and and where she is left in all of that that kind of situates the decisions she makes and kind of contextualizes why she is the sort of person she is which is so distinct from our our stand or our other uh, uh Austin uh, heroin, heroine heroine what was that it's like an heir who's also a heroine stealing those h's <laughs> stealing them they got rid of my h's um uh which is to say that emma's kind of mean emma fucking sucks man lizzie is lizzie rules and we're married and emma for the first three episodes is impossible to be around and that is very intentional it's intentional in the in the book uh, and it's intentional here. Uh, but I think this this adaptation really wants to underscore that this, this adaptation does not want you taken in by her until the not the very end, but until three episodes in. I think you do a lot of like rolling your eyes at her right out the gate.
0: Yeah, which I think is interesting from the start because I'm not sure you're supposed to – I am not sure how Austin initially wants you to feel sure. about Emma from the jump. Uh, I've read the novel only only once. I don't remember it being as uh, searching as this adaptation is in some places. Like I remember having to work a bit harder to extract these readings from the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there, but they're just not. They're, you know what I mean? They're not there on the page. You totally. have to actually sort of put together the pieces a little bit better and sort of think about uh, whether or not you, you shared an excellent piece, which I'm sure we'll get to later, but you know, how reliable is our narrator? Here? Right, uh, right. What perspective do we have on the story? But I think something really interesting in this introduction and in the transition to sort of the first act of this story, uh, both the novel and then adaptations like Clueless, like the 1996, I'm a, I'll play this off as charming. Uh, mm-hmm. If you go back to the way I introduced Clueless, uh, you know, the Emma character is rich, beautiful, and clever, and coming into her own. And that's kind of where the story begins. And we're supposed to find this, it's sort of a comedy of errors a little bit. The character is a little bit conceited, mm-hmm. but is well-meaning, uh, you know, and, and we sort of forgive her, her the, the blinkers uh, she, she wears. Right. Here in this introduction, it's very interesting because actually it foregrounds class and loss very quickly the introduction is a bunch of children in the opening of the story lose one of their parents yeah or, or both their parents uh, I think in the case of uh, Jane, Fairfax. Jane Fairfax she's being raised by she's being raised by an aunt and it's interesting for Emma they say you know the Sun never stopped shining on Emma well clearly it kind of did but at the same time she gets to stay home with her father she gets to have a governess she continu- her childhood continues on without a parent two other children who do not share her like class status are sent away to radically different circumstances. One is basically it comes across almost like a kidnapping by mm-hmm. a wealthier relative. Uh, and is just kind of forcibly taken away from uh, Mr. Weston we, is his name. Uh, but Frank Weston is basically taken away by a rich aunt. And in, you know, in, in the wake in the, tr- in the midst of the trauma of losing his mother, he also loses his father and mm-hmm. is gone for years. And then Jane Fairfax, because her guardians can no longer afford to raise her, uh, they are a pair of uh, there – there is a mother and then an unwed daughter. Uh, they They are both declining in fortune. And they make the decision we have to send her off with a good family. Mm-hmm. And we can't keep her. And so I think it's really interesting right from the jump of this, we're actually being encouraged to think about like – Emma's experience of the world and its vagaries versus other people who do not share her privileges. And I'm right. not sure every adaptation makes that choice.
1: Well, and I think that that comes across really strongly uh, right away by framing what she desires to do. And maybe I should slow down and kind of set up what the, the arc of the story is for listeners who haven't watched this yet or who, who haven't read it. Um, this is a story about Emma, who is the the daughter of uh, a a you know well to do man she is unlike i'd say the 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 bennets who we know so dearly is in a position of security right she is not eager to be married nor does she need to be she is a woman of means yet also in a strange way feels so much less worldly than the Bennetts. This is a story that takes place entirely inside of one county that is only 16 miles away from London but seems the world away. She has no interest or, or, uh, or the, you know, the city of London, the city as it exists, only exists to take people away from her small circle of control and power. Um, she is a young woman who plays matchmaker who, you know, if you've seen Clueless, you know, some of these will, will start to, to the, the boxes will become ticked checked um, who thinks she knows what's best for everyone around her who is smart who is clever who is funny um, and talented but for whom she does not necessarily recognize the limits of her talents um and who you know the the kind of arc of the story is that she uh, takes under her wing uh, a young woman who is not of means. A- attempts to do some matchmaking with her. Finds herself with uh, a rival in the in the uh, in the person of Jane Fairfax who we mentioned earlier. Um, and eventually comes to uh, find a, a partner in the person who was always kind of obviously her partner, especially in this adaptation. Uh, her cousin is that is that correct or her no her her brother in law. I believe is Mr. Knightley.
0: Yeah. He's her brother-in-law and also I think nearest neighbor.
1: Right. Uh, uh who, so who is this, uh- bickering, bantering partner. You know, if you're listening to this and have listened to Waypoint stuff, very much in the Bioware companion sense. The two of them like wander into a room, like snicker at things that they both find repulsive and then banter and bicker with each other about every other thing. And it's great. They have an incredible chemistry and it's so obvious. This is is a work in which it is so obvious from the beginning that these two characters are getting together in, in this adaptation, I think. Um... But you can almost see the Bioware conversation wheel. Oh, so easy. In their
0: exchange. Now that you say <laughs> it, I'm like, shit. Yeah. Like it does feel like at times they're playing a dialogue game. Yes. together.
1: Yes, it's, di- it's a, it's a dragon age two relationship in which they have rival manse to themselves into a happy ending. Uh, you know, they've chosen the opposite thing enough times that you get the big conclusion scene where he tells her to do to, to, to the badly done. And then you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I have to go get the, the up scene and make this right. It's so good. Um, and we can, we can kind of go even more slowly, but I do, there's an, a moment early on in the, uh, first episode that I really love. That is not in the text at all or it is it is presented so much differently, right? There's a section early on where she's like, oh, I'm reading 101 books, right? And in the book, that's just set up to be like, oh, she's the sort of person who makes lists. She makes lists. And then she tries to complete them, but mostly she makes lists and shows people her lists. in the In the adaptation we watched, that is specifically her making a list of 101 books after she has heard that a rival of hers in in conversation has read 100 books. And I love the idea of this hero who decides like. You know what? if she read a hundred books, I'm going to read a hundred and one books, and whether she does it or not is besides the point because what what is the point is that she would be of the sort who could list one hundred and one books and say in conversation, "Ah, oh, yeah, I'm working through the list and and that is like how she wants to present herself and I think because of that difference, right, you immediately in the in this adaptation are like, I can't believe Jane Austen wrote this, this story that is about how terrible this woman is, especially because this is a woman who, like her, is unmarried, is not looking to get married, and is, you know, very witty to the degree that others kind of can't stand being around her. Um, go ahead.
0: I was thinking something else that this, ser- like, that this series does, I think pretty much from the jump. There's different ways you can present what is keeping Emma. Yes. Like, what is keeping her at home? In other adaptations, maybe you don't call attention to it. Her whole world, and this is this is why I had you look at the opening credits to the nineteen ninety six version, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful opening credit sequence. Uh, it opens on the Milky Way, mm-hmm. but it turns out to be sort of a silk screen backdrop, and then you see a spinning globe, and it turns out to be sort of a hand painted uh, ornament. But you see, it sort of zooms out on the globe, and the globe, the only thing on it is this one county of England, right? And the and the whole point is her entire world is this county. And what's interesting in that adapta- adaptation is, it's presented as, and that's enough. The whole world could be just that Highbury, one county. you know, just yeah. the, the
1: town of Highbury and the nice hills around it.
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of a, a charming provincialism. Like yes. it's enough for it's enough for a young person. It's en- this is a good place to come of age. What's interesting in this version is that Emma says she's content. Yeah, but there are a lot of hints that she's a deeply sad and lonely person. And really the thing that is causing her to be evasive about ever leaving, uh, you know, highbury, uh, is that her father is unwell. Yeah. Uh, he is presented. And again, you can, you can play this for laughs as him just being kind of a stick in the mud who doesn't like going out, but it becomes very clear in this version. And I think this is probably a better reading of the novel that he has, some kind of undiagnosed mental disorder. It oh. feels like, it feels like he has depression, anxiety, uh, with in the, in, in, um, Gammon's portrayal, uh, maybe with a bit of like obsessive compulsive disorder, but like there, like he gets fixated on worries about, you know, he catastrophizes relentlessly through the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets very antsy to the point of like panic and pain, at the thought of like leaving home or his children leaving he cannot he cannot bear it and emma has sort of taken it on herself though she does not call it call attention to it she does not frame it as i have to stay here and take care of my sick parent because he cannot bear being away from me instead she always deflects and says i love it here i don't want to get married i don't need to see the world
1: right right and there are lots of moments where that reads genuinely um, yeah. She has she has a warm relationship with her father, even if it is also one that puts restrictions on her mobility. Um, and I think that that to me has been one of the core questions of watching this and thinking through this is like this is a character for whom mobility is not a problem, but nor is it a priority. Um, yeah. And that that is strange uh, coming from Pride and Prejudice in which mobility and uh, uh, is so clearly the the uh the trophy or the treasure that you get from gaining privilege, right? The reward of money, the reward of having social standing is that you get to go to Brighton, that you get to go to London, that you have a place to stay that that is like actually kind of nice or you have social relations that will put you up when you see the world um, and that you get to spend time with the people you want to spend time with uh, and that restrictions of the sort that like we're familiar with, you think about something like the idea of marrying uh, Mr. Collins, the, the fear is like, ugh, like I'm gaining stability but I'm losing what freedom I have as someone who is not married yet, right? So many of the questions around in Pride and Prejudice are about mobility and about freedom to travel and to be alone and to be with the people you want to be with in various configurations. And so for this to start with, one, someone who has the privilege to do that but chooses not to because of a relationship with her father. And then second, for whom makes it her hobby – the matchmaking of others, and the control of who goes where, there is something different happening here. And, and for me, part of, part of me ends up wondering how much of this is – I think I've talked about this before, but when I was in grad school, when I was doing my master's, I swear I'm going somewhere with this, uh, I was working on a project with uh, a professor. Uh, I was a research assistant to this guy, Arne uh, de Bevere, I couldn't spell it, D-E-B-O-E-V-E-R, who's an academic at at CalArts, and his project was about um, fiction writing and the sort of – the ways in which building worlds and characters has a certain – what you would call like politics of care and a biopolitical component by which he is really interested in and and by extension, my research ends up being also about this – Um, The ways in which people who tell stories are inventing people to torture them, right? Uh, uh, Jane Austen writes these books and then like – spends all of this time and effort creating these characters with complex lives and tossing them into chaos. Um, There's some really interesting things here when you go through like the history of storytelling and the the pronouns that were used in classical Greek between gods and fictional characters being the same and both of which are like extant in a way that you don't think about like uh, non-human things, you know, Uh, there's a lot to dig into there, but the, the core of it is like, Hey, what is there about writing that puts you into this mode of of being a controlling figure, someone who wants to create worlds and put the world right or put the world into trouble, and Emma is a creator in the same way except instead of writing novels, she is a matchmaker. She's creating households all around her. Her, 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 What she wants to do is make the world in an image that she finds aesthetically pleasing. Ah, yes, those two would be a good pair. Oh, no, I could never let let Harriet marry a, a farmer. And Part of that is about personal care, but part of it is aesthetic. Part of it is what she thinks a good match looks like, like a matching pair of socks, you know? And, and part of what she learns is, in fact, sorry, things don't work that way. So you sort of
0: set me up for probably one of my hobby horses for this episode. I uh-huh. think I talked about – I, I, te- I think I texted you a few nights ago and I was like, holy shit, galaxy brain moment here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma is just the story of Lady Catherine de Bourgh as a young woman. Um, yes. and
1: That was a Galaxy Brain moment, but I kind of love it.
0: And I think what I mean by that is – so Mr. Collins is a dumbass, but he's right about one thing, which is that Lady Catherine de Bourgh does have a remarkable condescension. Yes. And what he means by that and what I mean by that in this case is <laughs> It's a, is a great that,
1: phrase that I know doesn't mean the thing we would mean with it, but it's great.
0: Right. Well, but it means both things. That's why Mr. You're Collins right. using it all the time is so funny. But for him, it's just remarkable that Lady Catherine de Bourgh takes notice of people and things that are beneath her notice. Right. And he means that in this really like genuflecting, uh, groveling sort of way. But there's another element to this, which is that it's kind of weird mm-hmm. the degree to which Lady Catherine messes around with people in her sphere of influence, right? Right. There's a passage in the book, I'm rereading Pride and Prejudice right now, where uh, it even goes into further detail about like, oh, the close attention she loves to pay to her tenants Uh and affairs in the village. She loves being judge and jury to all the local dramas. And what's weird about that is this isn't really what you're supposed to do. Like one of the, you know, there's there's a flip side to this sort of structured class system, which is that People are also sort of supposed to keep to their own affairs right. a little bit. Now it is the right and privilege. It's not an equal power dynamic. Like it is the right and privilege of rich people to condescend and mess with the you know the lives well being of people who should who shouldn't uh, have anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily get you censured, but. Nevertheless, it's strange. It's not, it's not the custom. And Lady Catherine is kind of remarkable. And it's one of the things that sort of marks her early on as if not a villain, a bit of an antagonist, at least. And this is kind of a pushy, rich asshole figure yeah. uh, in a way that most of the other characters we meet are not, not even Darcy, really. Darcy sort of respects these, these boundaries. Like Lady Catherine Emma does not. Now it's charming in Emma because she's younger. And over the course of the story, she's going to learn about (laughs) her own limits of, uh, insight and power and wisdom. But I think what's interesting here is that a lot of what like lady Catherine is castigated for Emma is in the entire novel is concerned with this, right? Like what happens when you have somebody who's basically like a small nation state in your local County, like rich, unaccountable, kind of out of control. Um, what happens when they start, in like, as you said, making aesthetic choices about how people ought to live their lives? Right. And it's harmless at first because Emma doesn't actually have power. She thinks she does. Right. This is the other part of it. She's kind of in this invisible cage. She thinks she's affecting her world, but really all she's doing is identifying people who are already, have, who are already like, into each other and saying, like, hey, they make it. Like, there's literally a point early in this episode where she matchmakes uh, Knightley's brother and her sister, uh, Isabel. Yeah. And as she's saying, I think they would work as a couple. It's my good idea. They are literally slapping each other's asses out in the They're like (laughs) chasing each other around (laughs) the garden.
1: Through the garden in public in the light of day. They could not be sending any stronger signals. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, and she's like, Whoa, brainwave here. (laughs) What if they got together? And so it's so funny, but also I think it's kind of it's it's kind of charming in a way because. Emma wants to feel that she does have agency in this world, maybe a little bit more than she actually does, right? That that, that she's not she, she's not trapped in this county. She's arranging everything to her satisfaction. Yeah, but yeah. really, life goes on without her, and she just wants to take
1: credit for it. Classic uh, Jane Austen line, uh, I'm not stuck in here with you, you're <laughs> stuck in here with me. Uh, Emma dons the Rorschach mask.
2: and hit someone with a steaming (laughs) jam somebody (laughs) into a terrain (laughs)
1: yep uh huh um but, but I mean, I, this, one of the ways in which I think this moves away from charming very quickly are when she is not simply encouraging matches, but when she begins to deny the agency of others or lead them away from decisions that they might truly make. And this happens almost immediately when she takes under her wing, uh, Harriet, what's Harriet's last name? Smith. Smith. Great, great last name. Harriet. Perfect. Couldn't be any, literally couldn't be anything else. Needs to be. Harriet By Smith. law. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Um, and the natural daughter of somebody or other. Of someone. Someone had a kid, and her name was Harriet. Harriet Smith. Um and Emma sees potential in her and says, like, oh yeah, Harriet could be, Harriet could be one of us. And we just set up the right marriage. And so kind of waves Harriet away from Robert Martin, who is a farmer, which means not a gentleman, but a farmer who is extremely of means. Uh, And who is extremely of means in this moment where having means doesn't mean nothing anymore. Do you know? Like this is 1815 or it's published in 1815. I'm guessing it's probably early 1800s when it's set. Uh, And a farmer of means in a town like Highbury may as well be a gentleman to some degree, right? He's going to be at all of the same social events that, that Emma would be. He's going to have access to a lot of these, these same spaces. And I, she can't see the future, but like let me tell you, of the two families to be in, either the rich farmer family or the slowly declining family of of the peerage, the farmer is going to shake out to probably be the one of means in the long run. And uh, Harriet is interested in Robert until Emma begins to wave her away and begins to see other potential pairings. Uh, Specifically, Mister Elton, this uh, story's annoying vicar. Not quite Mister Collins. Mister Collins more sinister. I think. Yeah, Mister. I was gonna say Mister Collins if he was like a shitty white boy on Twitter. You know, Mr. Yeah. Collins in in Pride and Prejudice is a, a being unto himself. You you dedicated an entire hour or two of the first Pride and Prejudice <laughs> podcast to the unique sort of being he is, but um but but Mr. Elton just gives me the worst like like uh, what you doing you up shitty white boy text vibes I could ever ever imagine. He's got
0: that he's even got that like Soft boy aesthetic, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like with, with with the sort of the I think now to be expected kind of like rat like cunning mm-hmm. uh, behind it, where like he seems all very sensitive and thoughtful, but like it's also deeply calculated. Uh, ooh, he's just. The uh, this sequence, is a very good Mr. Elton he's oily
1: he is so oily is the one of my standout moments I think in this story is the um, or in this this adaptation is the party that gets the the snow is coming and I was afraid about be, being snowed in and it is just shot after shot after shot of Emma trying to put distance between herself and Mr. Elton and him closing the distance and trying again and again to infatuate uh, or, or to uh, there's a different word I'm looking for here ingratiate Ingr- not but it, it's not- Not even ingratiate himself. It's just to entangle his presence with hers, right? He just wants to be near so if there happens to be a moment that he could ingratiate himself, he would be available to make it. Just a slimy, miserable motherfucker who also – there's a great carriage scene in which he is finally shot down. Um, And note, uh, I watched these while I was playing Sekiro, so I have (laughs) – a deep uh connection between um uh between him and a giant ugly snake uh based on what I was playing, I think that ended up being very appropriate, appropriate. yeah
0: uh-huh yeah. I loved by the way um so after Emma convinces slash pretty much blatantly manipulates Harriet yes Blatantly. Uh, into it's refusing, absolutely that. yeah it's it's a disgraceful like this is like she is the worst. Like, she's the this fucking one. Like Harry gets this
1: is a letter. Harry gets a letter that is, it's one of those things. Like, in watching this, I was like, oh, this is kind of twee and shitty. In which uh, the uh, Robert Martin has sent a letter that is like um, a riddle, basically. Uh, to his feelings uh, And it's uh, it, Emma deciphers it for Harriet In a sequence that is kind of amusing No hold on Or is this wrong or is that for Mr.
0: Elton That's Mr. Elton for his For Emma's book of riddles Oh you're right You're right. This was you're the right. most you're boring right. You're right. You're era right. in history Ugh. To be trapped in a single county Ugh. Like yeah no This is like it's it's brutal dude Like in Pride and Prejudice people are always like Doing needlepoint and shit yeah. but At least that looks meditative But like <sighs>
1: but uh, i don't want uh, is doing like moment.
0: theme parties around like i'm creating a riddle book
1: you're right you're right
0: though i don't know maybe that could be fun if you had the right if you had the right people then what is these the these which is
1: the, the right letter, letter? So it's been like a couple of weeks since i since i watched it. so it's just, it's soon. just
0: a please marry me letter okay. it's just a well written like robert martin sends a very good right you're uh, right declaration Straightforward. his feelings yes. and intentions yes.
1: and she somehow spins that around in such a way that it Undercuts the the desire and and makes it clear to Harriet that she should in no uncertain terms be opposed uh, to this proposal. Like the scene in which this happens is one in which she gets Harriet to talk herself out of something she so clearly wants, and it's despicable. Like it is. Yeah. I just couldn't. There was a point where I was like, I don't know. I can watch the rest of this because of how completely disinterested uh, Emma was in Harriet as a human instead of a project.
0: Um, Well, and also it's been made very clear by this point that Emma is using Harriet to paper over her feeling of loss of her governess. Right. That Emma is once again – like Emma is also struggling with this feeling of her world is small. People are leaving it. Mm -hmm. Her sister lives in London and has a growing family. Uh, like Emma is starting, you know, as she becomes a young woman, she matters less to the people around her. Uh She, and they are starting their own lives. And so she grabs onto Harriet because here is somebody who I can keep with me. And this is the other motivation she has for shooting down the Martin thing. If Harriet marries Robert Martin, she'll be a young married woman and she'll be living with Robert Martin and she will not be hanging out with Emma and being Emma's friend and it does not appear like Emma has other friends. No. Really. Outside uh, of Mr. Knightley. You know, outside of Knightley. And this sets up, I think, the best scene in episode one, uh, and really gives you a taste of just how good these portrayals by Ramallah Garay and, uh, I mean, she's extraordinary in this. She's fantastic, uh, yeah. Ramallah Garay and Johnny Lee Miller uh, are. He brings to Emma the news that, hey, I take back what I said about Harriet. She seems like. She seems like a you know good sort of girl. And great news, uh, she's she's got a very eligible match coming up. And Emma is like, well, funny story, I torpedoed that. Mm-hmm. And Knightley and Emma start to really get into it. Yeah. Uh, about the like what her motivations were. And what's interesting is and I, and i love this decision by this adaptation and then Garay's portrayal here there's also an element of Emma's fighting this battle it's kind of a proxy battle over gender roles yeah. that she has she's identified and she's uneasy about uh she is uneasy about the fact that well why is it why should harriet Ha- why should harriet have to accept uh you know a proposal from a farmer respectable though he is like why should she have to settle for uh the life of a farmer's wife uh you know she's one of us and it's it's unfair that she's not considered eligible for to to marry anyone in our set and she does resent she she does resent the fact that like harriet is judged for being Uh, someone's natural daughter, right? Not a legitimate daughter uh, of, of, of anybody who's known. And she correctly identifies that as kind of an awful thing about their society. But I think Knightley fires back and I think this is also well advised. His, his argument is, yes, there are, there are structural ills here, but we do live in the society and (laughs) we do, you know, there, there are, there are good decisions to, to be made here, uh, and you've just steered your friend catastrophically away from one.
1: There um, is There is something yeah. so cool about that sequence, which is that – it occurs as Emma is moving through the house and decorating it with flowers and making small changes to make the space feel uh, more pleasing for her and for her father, lifting vases, moving them from room to room. There is such a feeling of kineticism uh, here. Lots of – walk. it's a big walk and talk. Um, but it's yeah. also happening and it, it happens from a sort of sunroom filled with paintings. It's like bright yellow – Uh, wallpaper these big windows outside of which her father is walking in the gardens Um, and you know she has on this bright gaudy like red dress and he has this deep blue on and then they find the, the like the height of their argument they move into a drawing room with a fireplace and all the color fucking exits the room because it is there's no natural light there anymore and this is where she kind of lays out the like the The kind of class and and proto feminist argument, which is that like however however vainless Robert martin is, however much he knows his place, that does not equal the fact that she is a woman of uh of merit uh, in a sense the she makes this argument that's very interesting to me and i i don't know enough about the time and the sort of um Kind of moral metaphysics in in, in yeah. society in which she basically says there is no doubt that she is the daughter of a gentleman by which she might mean a gentleman of of you know indiscretion uh, who who has made some choices, but also there's the sense of like Because of the way she so easily socializes with a woman like me and other women of of gentle upbringing, she must be of gentleman's blood, right? She must – she has it in her. She's a natural at this. She must be there. And – there is something like so convoluted in in that logic that is that I think goes to speak to some of why she seems so confused at the beginning of this point, right? She wants to un- she wants to say like, "Yo, men suck because they're gonna choose a pretty face over a smart woman every fucking time." But also, she re- she builds that recognition of a smart woman being tied to the fact that she's of of you know high birth, even if it is not recognized high birth. Um, and of course, neither of them comes out and says. What that might mean, uh, oh, the fact that that presumably she was she was the child of a of a noble who would not uh, marry whoever the mother was or was already married, and the mother was a sex worker or a local town woman or you know whatever, just a person. Um, and I I think there's something so interesting about the way this this whole sequence is shot because it gets at like her noble motivation. It gets at the fact that like her motivation even as matchmaker is not simple vanity and play there is a there is something under there about the way she thinks the world is unjust and how she can bring it into into arrangement like the flowers right
0: but it's still Yes, but she's also sublimating her her argument and yes. her anxieties yes. into someone else's life, and yes. that's the fucked up part. That is the Where, fucked up when part when she spins on Knightley and she, you know, calls him on. Oh, come on! Like she's she's a pretty girl. She'll do just fine. Mm-hmm. Do not kid yourself that she should sell herself short just because she's not, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, you know, the the sort of anxiety there that that Emma clearly has over knowing how. Women's intelligence is kind of devalued uh, in their set, and her her sort of wariness over that. Um, but I love how the sequence ends too. Uh, again, talking about just great camera work. Um, so Knightley warns her, yeah. "You have misread Elton." Mm-hmm. If you like he sees them together very briefly. Elton arrives in the middle of the scene. Knightley observes very briefly uh what's going on. This is a recurring theme. Knightley and Johnny Lee Miller is very good at being an active, passive character in a yeah, scene he is. of like just sitting there in the corner of the frame observing. Um it's really kind of exciting to watch him take in a scene. It's I think, it, you know, he plays Sherlock Holmes on I, elementary. And you see rules. why he got that part That
1: show fucking rules. I have to watch more of it. I only watched the first two seasons. <laughs> Train spotting. Yeah, he's just good. And I want to see more of stuff great. with him. I want to go back and rewatch more elementary, yeah. which I which I've uh, anyway, That should, we should do something anyway. with that at some point anyway.
0: So he warns her that, he warns her that Elton is a bad call and she is misreading what is going on there. And he storms yeah. off. And we see the shot composition a couple times. There's this long, gorgeous lane up to, uh, sort of their, uh, you know, I guess ballroom door. It's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, it's not a foyer really. It's, it's their back door. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, a, a garden door. He walks out the lane and begins receding up the lane and she sits down on the couch with her back to him. And you hear his, Just you know, boots crunching on the gravel and for a moment, you can see her almost lose it.
4: Mm
0: -hmm. And this is the other thing that Gry is portraying in Emma is that Emma is, (laughs) Emma is not afflicted by much self-knowledge and she also does not have a great deal of command over her feelings or even ability to, I think process their intensity at times. And so just at this moment in the wake of this argument, you see her, like, basically swallowing her, like, anger and sadness over what just happened. And then he starts coming back. Yeah. And it is like the sun has come back <laughs> into the room. She sits up. She turns around. She's like, I knew we weren't really fighting. Mm-hmm. And, oh, no, they really were. <laughs> and he finally closes it off. I, this is where he warns her off about Elton. Yes. and They're not your dolls. They're, they're not
1: your playthings, et cetera. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then the scene ends. But it, it is a great moment that also captures uh I think so much about it's easy to forget how young Emma is. Mm-hmm. Uh and also how much she is as light as the stakes are for much of the story. Um, they're real to her. Yeah. And I think she does a very good job of communicating that in this scene.
1: Uh and again, this is a scene like you said, the nat the light there is natural, right? Because it's this back ballroom door, whatever it is, into this into this receiving room with the fire he opens that door and so when he comes back in i mean it's open when he walks away obviously and she like flings her arms up it's fantastic uh and when she walks back in like they're both shot in this beautiful natural light or i it's probably not actual natural light but it's shot as if it were I actual
0: actually light. wondering that that's i want to talk about one scene later but yeah, yeah it's interesting
1: um because it's supposed to be the sunlight on her face with him you know it's, it's very funny because like when he first walks back in based on the way the sun is coming in his face is dark and her face is bright and then when they shoot him backlit you can still read his features but you have to imagine that for her in that in that shot composition she would be like looking into the fucking sun um and it's also she also plays it as being like even as he's scolding her and this is a bigger question because so much ends up hanging on him scolding her throughout the story she is in his light right like Please come back and scold me. Please come back and keep fighting. Like let's keep fucking arguing with each other. This is what I am the most me. Right? We've talked about this with Darcy and uh, and Lizzie as yeah. like that that idea of co-presence. Uh, is when they both get to be the most themselves uh, by the end of that story. Though the, They get to kind of have their hair down, so to speak, and be most at their most relaxed and most open. And, and sometimes that does mean um, judging the rest of the world around them, and sometimes it means uh, kind of walking quietly in nature, like these things that are similar for each other. But for Emma, like these sparring matches – with, with Mr. Knightley are her at her peak in some ways. And partially because no one else wants to fucking spar with her because she's so annoying, right? No one else wants to actually engage with her in this way. Why? There's no reward. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think that the way that she is played here is uh, there is a, an affection in her eyes that is like – She's gulping. She is like very, very – there's a very sensual experience here in the sense that like in – the, in the sense of senses, right? You really have to read her as taking in every physical word that is being said with her entire face. It is not just a scene of her listening. It is a scene of her like hanging on every word of him telling her that she fucked up. Um, and we get more of that throughout the, throughout the series. And it ends up being an interesting I, – I, So much of this ends up turning on the question of she is a woman of means. She could live her entire life without being married and live happily. She could be Catherine – Lady Catherine de Bourgh and could have a life in which she continues to be the center around which society orbits in her small corner of the world. But in the end, instead, Mr. Knightley grounds her, shows her the error of her ways – Reminds her that some people are poor and that she should take into account her privilege and live well with that uh, and be kinder and more compassionate um, and also married. Um, and I mean she, by the end she wants to marry other people anyway. So I don't want to say it's all Mr. Knightley convincing her uh, that marriage is is what she should be. But in terms of like the, the fictional logics at play – it is in desiring to be married that she begins to moderate her playfulness with the others in her life and the ways in which she wants to be controlling, right? She decides instead to apply that sort of control over her own life um, and we're jumping ahead here. But by the time she decides that she worries, that the kind of drama of the final episode is that she's waited too long, right? She's had all this skill and matchmaking in her own mind and in fact has had the opportunity to make a match for herself and has chosen not to. Um, Do you want to go over some of the other big picture stuff before we get to that moment, though? Because we can kind of Uh, jump back and forth a little bit over the kind of first two episodes here.
0: So I'm thinking about... um, We should probably take... Because I think episode two concerns a lot of this stuff. We should probably talk about two other families in her orbit. Yes. uh, The Weston Churchills. Yep. And the... um, Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. What are they? They're the... Yeah, you know, the... (sighs) Uh, the talker, just uh-huh. the ceaseless talker.
1: Uh huh. I'm looking at a character list and don't know. It's a B. Um, we will take a break and know the names of the characters when we come right back. Bates, the Bates family. Yes. We'll take a quick Bates break. <laughs> Brb. Be right, Bates. Bates right back.
0: And we're Bates. <laughs> uh so I think there's this is the other thing that I do like about this series there is a lot of pain and anxiety happening in the margins of Emma's world that she doesn't yes. fully see. And I think one of the first things to bring up here is uh, there, there's a whole, um, you know, Harry Lime thing happening with Frank Churchill a little bit uh, who we, who we see uh, taken away in the opening minutes of this, of the series. Uh, her governess is married uh, to Mr. Weston. Yes. And her, uh, and he, A governess. For people who don't know
1: what a governess is, also is sort of like a caretaker, and in, like in Emma's
0: a, case, like surrogate big
1: sister or mom. Yes, exactly. Right in that big sister slash mom territory. Like young enough that she was her closest friend, but also old enough that she could be a guide and uh, and a maternal figure.
0: And they have a great dynamic, like. These relationships all feel so well realized Mm -hmm. in the series, uh, The Dynamics. But um, one of the things that apparently has not happened much is that Frank Churchill never visits. Right. And part of that is because it is very clear that the same aunt who took him away uh, so high-handedly in the beginning remains a really controlling and vindictive person but also he does keep telling his father i'm going to come back and visit i do still regard you as my father mm-hmm. i you know i want to be i want to be in your life and want you to be in mine but then he just never shows and you know mr weston is kind of charlie brown with the football mm-hmm. uh, every time frank is allegedly coming home and there's this point where he's talking excitedly about how soon frank is going to be visiting and Emma makes a joke. And for once, like, she makes some ill-advised jokes in the series. But this one, I could see myself fucking up in the ex- – I can actually see myself fucking up in all these ways. So I, should, yeah. I take that back. But she really does mean it to be kind of a harmless joke, right? Where she was like, well, we'll, well you know, we'll see. Uh, I feel like, you know, every time he's, he's on his way back, he doesn't make it all the way. And she realizes immediately, like, how badly this hurts Mr. Weston yeah. to hear. And – you realize that like frank churchill's absence is a topic of interest for emma oh who is this guy but for her you know for for the for mr and mrs weston it's a source of like deep familial pain yeah. connected to a lot of old grief um and then i think to that there's also a heavy implication in this series that uh the bates who had to send off their uh, their, their niece, um, Jane Fairfax, that also appears to have been a dire turning point in their fortunes as well. They sent her off because they had to move to smaller quarters in town. Uh, but also it appears to have been the moment that, uh, the elder, the, the elder Mrs. Bates, uh, slipped into some kind of, uh, You know, early onset dementia or something. It's it's very hard to read, but she is Mm -hmm. now uh, a silent, um, you know, rather sad old woman in a wheelchair who just does not interact. And uh, the younger Miss Bates is just kind of alone, you know, taking care of her mom who never Mm -hmm. answers back. Uh, and missing fiercely. the re- She is known for being a tedious character because all she ever wants to do is talk about her niece. Right. And it is exhausting. She does not seem like a fun person to be around. Well, but also, she lives through those letters because she misses exactly. her niece so much.
1: She misses her niece, and also her world is, is genuinely so small. She is confined to Highbury in a way that uh, Emma is not technically and yet remains. Um, and so uh, Miss Bates... There is a degree to which it feels like she lives through her niece because her niece still has the hope. Right, We're saying Miss Bates and I yeah. suspect that listening – listeners are like, OK, like another 20 – something. no, no, no. She's an older woman who is living at home with her mom who is working as a I, – I, what is she even working at at this point, right? Is she just renting the room out? For a little bit of income, yeah. basically.
0: The implication I have is that they're living. So they are gentry, right? They, they, they were born gentry. gentry.
1: They're just right. Yes, right. So they they, they no longer income.
0: they yeah they no longer have income. They no longer have property. With probably what they have is a dwindling inheritance, right? And uh, that inheritance is probably quite substantial. But the disappointment of all their hopes of all their you know attempts to perhaps marry or whatever means that they just have to keep tightening belts Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think and i think for a lot of us like i don't know man it's it's tough dude like this is the first time i found myself like oh man i can i can empathize with the basis plight a lot more than i did when i was a kid yeah you know the the whole idea of uh you know getting older realizing you know (laughs) You know, you you got to take care of your parents. You know, the the in, there's no longer an infinite well of like labor people can perform to get more money to solve problems. Like you right. just have to deal with deepening constraints. Right. Um. And I think I think another thing I do like about the portrayal Miss Miss Bates here is that she does talk ceaselessly, and um, you know has a bit of a a motor mouth tendency without much need of response, but also she does come across as someone who's been alone way too long that like, you know, when I've been deepest in my freelance nonsense, like I get squirrely in ways that Mm -hmm. like that all feels very familiar that when you, when someone shows up to provide some company, you immediately like just go way too far, um, in, in sort of enjoying having company and someone to talk to. Right. Um and so I, I it's it's a very good uh portrayal and it is an important thing that is happening in the background of the story because in episode 2 uh first I think we get Miss Fairfax right. showing up.
1: Who is Emma's only real rival in the story in in terms of uh what you would think of as like noble quality right the, the qualities of being someone who could entertain who has a wit who can play piano who who does some art um, and her only romantic her true romantic rival throughout the bulk of the story. Um, Jane Fairfax is someone who has lived in the in the margins of uh of Emma's life, and I mean that both in the sense that she stories about her are, are prevalent and, and all of her great accomplishments and however many languages, however well she speaks French, or however many books she's read, or whatever her relations are, or whatever she's been taught by by her adopted father, and all that stuff. But also there is The sense that you get when I say living in the margins of Emma, you can feel Emma writing her name in the margins of her notebook, right? And saying like, this fucking Jane Fairfax is going to come to town and what's that going to mean for me? I'm going to have to be in charge here. I have to like get my defenses in order. I need to like be in control of everything and is confident that she is, right? Um, And eventually tries to – there's a degree to which it feels like Emma's decisions around Jane are – It's you, I think you have to think about Jane Fairfax in relation to Harriet Smith, right? As both being women who are not in – that do not have the comfort that Emma does and Emma saying, OK, well, how do I either remedy this or let this spin off into disaster as as it will? Um And this is more Emma being kind of unbearable, right? Um, (laughs) Well, there's – yeah, the only
0: thing that – the only thing that Emma takes an interest in with Jane Fairfax is this rumor that she has this romantic attachment to uh, the family she was sent off to to live with. And it is clear that like Jane is also now – you know, kind of trapped in that house and could use a companion. Right. And it never seems to really cross Emma's mind that, like, hey, maybe this is somebody worth knowing. I think maybe she does view her too quickly as a rival. She's yeah. too jealous. Like, all those letters, even if they are being read ceaselessly by a woman that, uh, you know, Emma has kind of learned to tune out a little bit, it has gotten to her. Clearly, on some level, she resents there always having been this offstage presence of someone who is very accomplished. Uh, despite not having her position right, and so she does kind of have that wariness of of jane uh i think it's i think another aspect of this uh you know novel that probably has aged pretty well is is the way it sort of is explicitly dealing with the way that uh women are sort of put into competition with each other yeah. and uh sort of wedges driven between them uh when they when they would find themselves you know. Naturally, allies are friends uh, in, in a lot of circumstances. But I think she's egged on in this. Speaking of people turning pitting women against one another.
1: Ah. Into this. Frank Churchill arrives. Twice. <laughs> Frank Churchill shows up.
0: Twice. Yeah. Which is our first... Our first indication that, like, mm, something's weird. Mm-hmm. First, he appears as a tall, dark, handsome figure on a horse that uh, Harriet and uh, Emma, I think, just run into. Yeah, it's Harriet and Emma. They just run into this guy on the road one day. Yeah. and In his
1: big fucking top hat.
0: Yeah. And they're like, do you need directions? He's like, no, I know exactly where I'm going. And then he, without introducing himself, he just rides off. And then a day or two later, uh, no, like four days later. Mm-hmm. Mr. Weston announces that Frank is here now and wouldn't you love to meet him and shows up at uh, Emma's uh, Emma's house with Frank in tow and they pretend like they both play it off as, oh, we've never met before. And for whatever reason, Frank has concealed the fact that he's been in town of late. Yeah. And then immediately makes Emma like his partner in crime for all these like shitty little observations about people in town and particularly Jane Fairfax. Like yeah. Emma doesn't have a, like she, she's not warm to Jane, but she doesn't have anything against her until Frank shows up and starts to, saying shit. Like, man, have you ever seen someone with hair so bad? you ever seen boy, don't, don't she, she look homely sucks? Dude, I,
1: <laughs> uh, huh? Uh, huh? Because, it turns, oh, this is this is even more fucked because of the shit that he eggs on, right? Which is, once he's there, I have to make sure I'm getting all this right in my head. Once he's there, he also encourages a read on the situation about Jane that Emma makes, that she's wrong about, right? So Emma has decided that, Jane and – what's the other guy's name? It's another – I'm going to look at a fucking family tree. Dixon. Yes. Dixon are into each other. She's doing her matchmaker thing again. And fucking – With someone who exists entirely offstage. A hundred percent. But Frank Churchill is like, yeah, I could see it. I could – yeah, totally. Secretly – and this is a spoiler – for people who haven't watched this yet, but maybe you showed or read it. Uh, Frank Churchill has been effectively betrothed to Jane secretly since before either arrived. The fucking audacity on this man. Yeah, so
0: there is being discreet. Like he has good reasons for keeping this under the radar, and those are explained later. Like his aunt was against aunt. any kind of match like this., yes. and she is clearly evil. Uh, and she goes to a family that has clearly used like inheritance uh, you know conditions and their wealth to like compel people to their ends, right? She didn't say, "Oh, I'm going to help out with Frank uh, Mr. Weston, and like here have some money to, to help take care of him." No, she was like, "I have money. I'm taking my sister's kid, mm-hmm. and you can go to hell. Yep. And clearly, if that move has been pulled once, she would probably do the same and like figure, you know, use her use her money to, you know, Frank. If you want to inherit, you're not marrying someone like uh, Jane Fairfax. He has good reasons for playing this under the radar. That's one thing. But there's a like, breadth you know, of, of playing it the vest? Yes. No. This is this is dissimulation. Yes. This is just complete. He is role playing. <sighs> Someone completely – oh my god, it's our subterfuge game.
1: It is our subterfuge game. It literally is. (laughs) He's playing a different game, Rob. He's decided that what would be really fun is to create false alliances to make sure other people are having a good time. There's some new players. You know, just presenting himself. Hmm. And presenting himself as if he is to be one. That is the other thing, right? He like flings himself into the midst of these women, all of whom are fine looking for a suitor, and is like, "Ah, oh, but which one will it be? Oh, I'm, I am so charming. You're, yeah, I am so charming. I- yeah, dude is
0: dude is starring in the fucking Bachelor, right on like he is he is like starring on The Bachelor. And like meanwhile, nothing is on the level, right.
1: And which again is leads keeps- to uh, some fantastic stuff with Mr. Knightley, who sees through it. Immediately, there's this early oh, then, scene where he's yeah. like, "Where is Mister? Uh, where, where has Frank Churchill gone?" And Emma completely taken in already, like, "Oh, he had to leave town on urgent business." And uh, uh, Knightley's like, "Urgent business? He's been gone for twenty years, and now he's a day in and he's left." And she's like, uh, "Urgent business? He had to go to London to get his hair cut." And <laughs> Mister like, "Oh." Urgent business had to go to London to get his hair cut.
0: So that being said, my barber recently closed okay. and like now uh-huh. he's moved somewhere else. So right. like I kind of get that part a little bit, but I agree it's it's pretty shabby. And then the other part of this is clearly what he is doing, and this is the other thing Knightley keys on. Frank Churchill's being kind of a jerk, and particularly like kind of being dismissive about Jane Fairfax and kind of right. being a cruel little gossip. But the thing that Knightley keys on is that Jane Fairfax is clearly being affected by all of this. She looks wounded. And this becomes increasingly pointed through episode three, uh, where Frank playing these games, Jane is not having fun. She's not
1: being invited to participate. This is not their deception. This is why it's the subterfuge game. Yeah. And she's not part of it. This is right. This is not like, I know what we'll do. We'll play a game with them. We'll go to Highbury and we will pretend that we don't know each other and that you will you can see that being a cute sexy thing right like, sure un- like, you could you could agree to yeah. that consent listen let's do it you know enthusiastic consent yeah. let's go home and pretend we're not in love and we're not already planning to get married Be like when second. andy
0: garcia picks up meg ryan in uh, when a man loves a woman
1: just like that that's based on a fic that was alternate an alternate universe fic of this um the the but the actuality here is he's decided to play this game and to make insulting her to other women in this space that she has to navigate all, already at disadvantage as someone who is not from here as someone who under is understood immediately to be a threat to the status quo by her her good qualities to make her a target he fucking sucks. He's like so much worse. The men who are supposed to be bad in this book feel so much worse than the bad men. Mm, Mr. Wickham sucks. Mm, no, Mr. Wickham Wickham's, is worse than. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, he is. He's worse. He is though.
1: But he, the, each of these two are worse than Mr. Collins.
0: Yeah, the, at like, least. Yeah, no, for for sure. Like, because Mr. They're Collins m- is mm. just too harmless and silly to be like. He yes. can be like mean. Yes, but like he's not smart enough to really make anything land. Right. Uh, whereas Frank is like he is cutting. Yeah, and it's you feel very uneasy about it. The things end happily here. You feel very uneasy about the married life Jane Fairfax is in for because yeah. I think we've all seen like, well, it's a, it's kind of a Mister Bennett thing, right? Like a married a married life of just being relentlessly screwed around with. Yeah. by someone who like, oh, is this real or is this? Uh, Just a, one of my clever little games. You don't know. Right. Uh, Which sucks. I do like that an early indicator of just his kind of narcissism is um, there's this party. Yeah. And yeah. at the, you know, one of the things Jane Fairfax is known for being accomplished at is music. And it starts out, he sings a song with Emma. Emma's all right. Jane is good. Jane is a good musician. Uh, She's a good pianist. And Frank Churchill goes up there. Just Mr. Life of the Party is like, all right, I I have contracted Miss Fairfax to play three songs, which I shall shall sing for you now. And Knightley is like, Oh, what it basically says like this guy's an asshole and goes up there and like talks him down to one song. Uh, and it's the first time that like Knightley seems very concerned about Jane Fairfax's mm-hmm. welfare. And that begins the rumor that there was a new pianoforte sent to miss to the, the Bates home. And could it be Mr. Knightley uh, who who sent it? Um. And obviously it was it was Frank, and we sort of get the indication that, that that's the case when uh, – in the next episode, when they all go to admire the piano, uh, Knightley's immediate reaction to is like, what kind of a jerk sends a giant freaking piano into a tiny one-bedroom?
1: Yeah, what kind? What kind of jerk would do that? Hmm. Who could it be? Yep. There's also this story about the f- – uh, Almost falling.
0: I I, could, okay, what, I couldn't parse you, this.
1: Huh? You said, I couldn't parse it. I thought you said, "Can we Kingdom Hearts this? Can we do that too? Can we do both?" <laughs> what was happening there? Do we neither of us understand this?
0: No. Good. <laughs> like no. I mean, the story is about the story is about this dude. Dixon,
1: Right. Who is the guy who, who he is was connected to the Campbell's right, He's like was a connected-
0: Campbell yes. cousin. Yeah. And apparently while she was with, cause on the one hand she was kind of adopted by the Campbell's, but also kind of like playing the role of like au pair right. to the Campbell's and she was traveling with them. She was on a cliff. Yeah. She stumbled, or the turf gave way. Or the wind blew just so. Yeah, and she almost fell off the cliff, I gather. We see this replayed many times. Multiple times! And this mysterious Mr. Dixon grabs her about the waist. Yes. And, like, sort of uh you know saves her in this very dramatic fashion from falling over the cliff and uh apparently like they sort of gaze deeply uh in each other's arms uh you know with you know over this over this precipice and this is the source of the rumor that there's this Dixon fellow that like she is romantically attached to I don't understand why we keep getting flashbacks to that story I think it's a bad piece of filmmaking Dixon is a non entity
1: yeah I, I also think I guess here's the thing that I think actually may end up being fascinating about it. It's one of a handful of stories about an event that happens off screen or off – out of the realm of Highbury that – or out of the realm of polite Highbury that colors the relationships that Emma then makes decisions based on those stories. The other um, is about a, a woman who gets attacked, who claims to be attacked, is attacked, uh, uh, Harriet. Harriet says that she was attacked by what we would now say uh, called travelers Romani. or Romani, depending. I don't know what the particular yeah. ethnic subgroup was there. I know the word that they use is a word I consider a slur and will not use. Um, uh, an event that I didn't think happened when I first watched this and I thought was a euphemism for something else, for why she was late and so disheveled, uh, but in fact, seems to be a true thing that happened Um Harriet believes, or Harriet was supposedly attacked by a group of young travelers, uh, young Romani children, uh, and Frank saves her, scares them away. It's bad. It's not In this
0: rendition. She's basically being owned by teens. Teens own thing. her. Like, like this. Is, this is basically it. Is like they yell in the modern at her. Ad- in a modern adaptation, she wandered into like a a herd of unruly skaters. Yes. Fell over in a panic and then they started ki- kicking her shit everywhere. Yeah. And like that's and then and then Frank shows up. But Freak. like th- this seems
1: pretty harmless, but but in this moment in telling this story, uh Emma has decided, "Aha, and this has been the spark." through which a love match was made. <laughs> the match is a light. Harriet's heart is on fire, and she is now so taken with, with Frank Churchill. Well,
0: this is not a wild leap, though, because it's in the middle. She has been brought to... Fair. She's been brought to... Uh, what's, what's
1: Emma's home? High... No, Highbury's, this town. The right? town. Um, yeah. What is the house? Hers is... Uh, Hartfield. Hartfield, Hartfield, right. Hart,
0: Hartfield and the Knightley's is uh, Dunwall. Uh, Dunwell. Dunwell, sorry.
1: Dunwell, yeah.
0: Dunwell, um, yeah. Though it does have kind of a Dunwall vibe, it does. too. I'm not going to lie, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, so Harriet's been brought to Hartfield. And as she's recovering her composure, she's like, by the way, I am so in love with this one guy.
1: I don't need to say uh, who. We, yeah.
0: We know. Oh, fuck. We've skipped way ahead, though. What did we skip we that was this, important? The dance that sets all of
1: us Oh, up. we should talk about the dance because I think the yeah, dance so connects to a Yeah, so Frank's like, lot. we gotta
0: the, Frank is like, we gotta we we should hang. We should have a dance. Emma, you and I should should have a dance. Again, it's very flirty. Uh and eventually, somewhat belatedly, but eventually, this dance does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh it's thrown by the Westons in the sort of assembly rooms in the town. Uh so it's very much like the Mariton ball in Pride and Prejudice. Um, the thing I like about this portrayal is that I think this is maybe one of the only adaptations of Austin where like a country dance or a small town dance feels like a country dance. Like it feels kind of like small yes. and unpolished and lively in a way that I don't think the Meriton ball really does. See, I don't know that that's –
1: I-, I think that, that- – so in watching this and in looking at this section of the text, my – and thinking about, again, the scale of these two stories, I also – one, I also was like, wow, this – again, I we use the word provincial a lot tonight, but – again feels provincial it feels rural it feels like down to what the music is that is playing. this is not yeah. uh uh you know these these dances have moves and have the you know particular steps that they're supposed to be following and all that but there is something so much more wild and so much more wild's a is a is a word with a lot of connotation to it um so much less structured or or constricted than than what the merriton ball looks like. The merriton ball feels like high society. This feels like a bunch of teens having an excuse to touch hands for the first time. I get this scene makes me understand why characters in Austen's works look forward to balls like this. And especially for someone like Emma who lives in this small town for which there is not much excuse by which you could socialize in this way that is about physical affection and physical touch and about physical, like, collaboration. Dances are sexy because it's two people figuring out a thing together and touching while doing it, right? That is not, like, a difficult thing to parse. Um, And in a world in which that is not allowed uh, and there aren't opportunities for it and there isn't such a thing as that sort of privacy... It is all the more obvious and this depiction makes that so clear, um, uh, not only in terms of the natural attraction of some of its, of its principal characters, um, but also just in terms of like what the v- literal value is of this. So kind of the key – the cornerstone on which this scene hangs is that no one is asking Harriet to dance. Right, other dances are happening. People have their pick of partners. And remember, Emma has said Harriet is pretty. She is smart. Like she will have her choice. She, anyone would want to dance with Harriet in the in the larger metaphorical dance that is. Uh, but it turns out in this very particular one, she is completely wrong. No one will dance with her until finally, Mister Knightley, after a few glances between her or between him and Emma. Steps over and does does the right thing and asks Harriet to dance, which lights up her entire world. Um, and you can see that there is more than just it is more than just I I will be embarrassed if I don't get to dance. She fucking wants to dance. And it the scene sells that so well that there is a pleasure of dance. There is a pleasure in this sort of play that does not come through in Maryton in Merritton in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice in the in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice also like and in most adaptations of Austen and and other period works dance feels like formality it feels like treaty signing when what it should partially feel like is I'm getting to move my body in fun ways I love this so
0: they dance three dances at this thing the first dance is that much more structured yeah uh, like formal dance She dances that with uh With Frank Churchill mm-hmm. And someone remarks Don't they look Well together uh, They look they were made together And it's the first sign That like we realize That Knightley Is maybe realizing like Oh Emma might not Just yeah. always be there Yeah um, and clearly the thought unsettles him, but he doesn't fully know what to do with it. But I love about the so the next dance is this like really lively, like country reel. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh very fast, uh, lots of like, you know, feet stamping on the floor, uh, couples whirling past, and Harriet's sort of left out there. What I love is that the whole sequence of her being like sort of socially rescued uh by Knightley. What I love is also this really intimate scene between him and Emma as well, because Emma is starting to get very distraught about how badly uh, Harriet is being yeah, kind of shunned here. And then Elton makes it worse because he's not dancing with his, his wife is, uh, you know, sitting this one out and he invites a couple other women to dance. Yeah. But then when somebody points out that Harriet is free, he sort of like obviously snubs her. Yeah. And so there's a sequence of shots with, you know, Harriet looking upset, Emma realizing she's trying to enjoy her dance, but she's getting increasingly uh, flustered by the fact that her friend is, uh, you know, basically socially drowning out there. And meanwhile, um,
1: meanwhile, Frank is continuing to insult Jane and say what, how bad her hair looks. And like, this is like the corn, this is like the, the centerpiece of his anti Jane presentation. It's fun. Yeah. Uh,
0: but then in the middle of all this, Knightley is taking everything in. He sees Harriet over there. He also sees Emma seeing Harriet. Yeah, and he realizes that like this thing is re- like this thing is becoming a crisis, and heads over there and waits for a break in the dance. It's a great beat. He extends extends his hand to her. She immediately jumps up, eager to dance. He holds her for one minute, waiting for the perfect uh you know break to appear in the dancers, mm-hmm. and then they tear it up uh and it's just it's a great moment um and is probably the you know one of the first moments that uh you buy Knightley's genuinely a cool character mm-hmm. It's um, also the moment you that
2: know. you
1: start to get emma does not just see her as a game piece right yeah I think and and i mean this is this is difficult because it's going to actually it may end up reducing Harriet again to game piece to some degree, but I wonder if. Knightley does step in if Emma doesn't look worried about Harriet. Does Knightley bother to step in if he doesn't recognize this is not only a crisis for Harriet, who is not a person of means, who is not a woman of standing, and who would be out of his life instantly if if not for the fact that Emma is upset for her? And to what degrees is his stepping in? On Emma's behalf, in a sense, I, and again, I, I think I, I don't want to discredit him completely from this because he does so so well, and because Harriet gets to fucking dance, she gets to dance and yeah. have a good time, and that is real. and that and also dancing isn't a commitment, right. Dancing is a thing that you can do with someone who is not your partner, even in this scenario, right? That is part of what the what the joy of it is. but the but the play of it does end up feeling like almost like. Not a reward for seeing for Emma, but to some degree, but to some degree a reward. He sees that Emma cares about her and is like, okay, if okay, this is not just someone who's passing in and out of our lives because she is a fad in Emma's life, this brief phase in which Emma cares about this woman as a plaything. Emma cares that this woman is being is, and it isn't just Emma was wrong. Emma is not distraught because she was wrong about Harriet's chances in the world. She is distraught because her friend is being passed over, and Knightley does. At least that's the way I, I read the 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 performance here.
0: No, I think that's I think that is a good reading. I, um, but what I what I think makes me think well of Knightley here, like I agree. I don't think I think what ultimately gets nightly moving is that Emma looks like she's about to cry. Yeah, totally. Uh, like, and that's when he's like, uh, this is, I got to get ahead of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the other part of this is. It's also very clear. He isn't really comfortable with these things either. Like, no. he, like literally he's known in the, in the region. He doesn't dance. Yeah. The, you know, he's another he's Darcy quite,
1: in that particular way.
0: Right. He's not a jerk. He just doesn't no. – there's some things he just doesn't like to do. He doesn't like dances. He doesn't like dancing. Right. Uh, he is very much the observe in the corner. And then, you know, it, like you see him numerous times in conversations, try to ride to the rescue of different people without that sort of interest in Emma. Yeah. Just trying to be considerate of other people. I think his interactions with Jane Fairfax – he rescues Jane Fairfax or tries to conversationally because that is his preferred mode of conduct. That's where he's comfortable to get him to dance, even though he can is uh, like, he needs a harder shove there. And so I, I, I don't think he, I don't think it necessarily betrays an indifference to Harriet that his motivation is Emma. It's more, that's what it took. It's, it's those two concerns, a sympathy for Harriet and his, uh, Sympathy and empathy for Emma yeah. that gets him over what sounds like it's been a pretty substantial hurdle uh, when it comes to him cutting a rug.
1: There's also – I mean something else for me. It's it's hard not to want to do the comparison between between Knightley and Darcy and, and specifically between Johnny Lee Miller's Knightley and Colin Firth's Darcy. Um one because I am just so affectionate towards and I have such like a warmth towards Johnny Lee Miller's Nightly. I know which of these two people I would like in my life more, and it's it's Nightly than 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 the Darcy. Um, but I think there are these occasional similarities. You get the Darcy and Knightley not dancing, s- standing in the corner of the room and observing everything. But I think that they arrive there for for such different reasons. Um, We've talked about Darcy and people in the, the forums and in comments and stuff have talked about um, Darcy is introvert. We've talked about Darcy feeling comfortable in his own home but not in society at large. He does not like the the kind of the games of polite society uh, and he's willing to play them. But he does not feel comfortable doing the dance uh, both again metaphorically and literally. Uh, whether or not Knightley feels comfortable doing it. I think what he just prefers is to observe the fun he has at these days. He likes being in this room because he's getting to watch everyone work and he wants to peel it apart, almost in a similar way to what Emma's – Emma likes this also. Emma likes seeing how people interact. I just don't think she's as good as it as Knightley is, right? Knightley does see through the thing and understand what relations are to people and picks up on those small detective-like clues about what their relationships really truly are. Emma is very good at saying it's seeing something said loud and aha, that was said loud. I'm going to – what I'm going to do is disregard the social more that says I'm supposed to ignore that thing that was said loud and instead I will claim that I was the one who said it. Um, and – so I think he's getting joy being in this room in a way that Darcy is not. Darcy's just, like, uncomfortable being in these rooms. Uh, Knightley's yeah. like, yeah, okay, what's going on here? What's, okay, what's popping? Like, let me pay attention a little bit. And that is what you uh, talked about at the top of the story, which is Johnny Lee Miller sells that attentive passiveness really well.
0: Well, this, the end of the dance sets up this great moment of, again, another beautifully intimate moment. Uh, he is standing there after the dance watching – Frank Churchill talking yeah. to someone. We sort of glimpse it's it's Jane Fairfax, but like he's sort of blocking her with his body so like nobody really sees how intensely they're talking. Uh, but Knightley clearly makes out they're having some kind of argument. Yeah. And he desperately wants to know more. And then Emma sort of comes up behind him and sort of uh, you know, touches back and is like, that was really nice what you did. Um and invites him to dance with her. Yeah. Uh, or, or more commands him to ask her to dance. Uh, now that the secret is out that, that he can dance. And I love this next touch. There's a couple things. First of all, all the other music has been, uh, what's the term, diegetic? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, all the other music has been sourced in the room. You see a band playing. Yeah. You hear the band play the start of the song that Knightley And Emma are going Hmm. to dance to. But then it is clearly a different arrangement of instruments on a different track. It is with with a sort of heartbeat rhythm on the strings. It is not anything the band has played tonight. They are clearly – like it is a great moment of the music that everyone else is dancing to fades out. And now they're dancing to their own music and it is a really like great and subtle thing. It's also a very sweet and romantic dance they do. It's
1: such a romantic dance. Like again, when I talk before about like, oh, I get why these characters care about these dances. It's for moments like these, right? Like uh, this sells their romantic uh, attraction so well. They are such a a – excuse me. They are such an obvious pair. Um, that even though neither of them at this point has vocalized attraction towards the other, it just like their dance brims with that energy. There is a sexual tension in this dance that has not shown up in any other pairing Outside of the characters, outside of, I guess, uh, Knightley's brother is is the one who's chasing around like that. OK. Yeah. Chasing someone around in the yard. Sexual tension. Uh, you know what? No, the tension's been released. It is noon. You are like jumping over bushes with your love interest. Yeah. The, no tension anymore here. The feeling of hand touching hand, the like careful steps, the ways in which smiles disappear from the face because they realize there is actually something very serious happening in this dance. Um, The like the ways in which Johnny Miller's eyes like disappear from hers for a second. They break eye contact and then speed back up to keep it like they it is masterfully done. This this one dance that sells you on this relationship as being more than just like a sort of. uh. Being built on the back of of neighborly disdain and, OK, there is 100 percent a future here because the romantic core is solid.
0: Yeah. And it's an important thing. I think they make smart things with the exception of one line. They don't call attention to the fact that according to the story, uh, Knightley is 16 years older than (laughs) than Emma. That's a big age Um, difference. I didn't know that. It is. And again, she's she's very young and like it does make for a weird dynamic with his sort of more mentoring aspects Uh, to her. I think they sort of wisely don't linger over that. But then she's she's 20. Uh, I think she's like 18 in the novel. Okay. Uh, I can't, but I can't. But it, it, clearly, she they're not playing her as 20 here. Uh, no, because she's of age at a point in the story considerably before our main action begins. She's already being, she's no longer being played by an actress who will be called Young Emma. Right. She is being played by Ramallah Garay, and then years pass. Right. And then our main action begins. Um, it is important to have a moment like this to sort of sell us on like, this being a couple we want to see get together uh, this is the thing that clueless doesn't really succeed no, in pulling at all. off in its final act I, like
1: I, I wasn't on the clueless pod but 100% has always been a, a thing that's been hard for me is that i don't think what's what's the love interest's name in josh josh that claire and yeah. josh feel as equals on the on the screen yeah. um his his age the age difference there is really felt for me as a viewer yeah. um the degree of which in, in this adaptation of Emma, their perspectives seem – their differences in perspective seem to be differences in perspective. When I watched Clueless, it felt like Claire did not know the world because of her age specifically. Whereas here, I still think Emma does not know the world the way that, uh, that Knightley does. But that is about her protectedness. That is about the fact she hasn't left this county much. That isn't about yeah. her faculty. Her faculty – is played as as equal that is why they are so good at bantering and bickering um and she is not shot as being deferential to him I- I- except for in these moments at which he scolds her and i think those are the one those are the moments that are hardest for me because i think those scenes are all really good and well shot and well acted but why it's important to also have this scene which is about Him doing something that Emma wants, and then the the clarity of showing their romantic attraction as being the core of that relationship. It is not simply a relationship in which an older man shows up and tells a younger woman that she's doing stuff wrong. Um, Yeah, those scenes are, are still a key part of what their relationship is, but it isn't. They aren't the only thing. They are not the. They are not the only thing by which that relationship exists.
0: Yeah. Uh so I, yeah, I thought this the sequence is basically magical. Uh I think this might be taken as a whole, these three dances, this entire sequence at the uh at the ball, um I am not sure I've seen a more convincing and more like beautifully rendered ball sequence mm-hmm. in an Austin adaptation in a, because the three dances well, are all very different. Look,
1: how does this look in the Paltro, Emma?
0: Is very much uh, following in the wake of mm. uh, not even. I, I'm sure the production probably overlaps. They're probably not going to school on the way the uh, <laughs> right. BBC version did it, uh, but they literally dance the same dance that they, that Lizzie and Darcy dance at the uh, Another Field ball, right? Uh, like okay. to the same song. Uh, so, uh, what is it, Mister Maggot's Dancing Shoes? I don't remember what the name of the song. It's a bad
1: name for a song.
0: It's not a good. It's not a good name. It's, so, it's something that bad. Um but yeah so they don't you don't, there's nothing like this in the uh in the 96 adaptation Please it's, it's Mr.
1: Beverage's maggot Somehow weirder somehow weirder
0: This is a good tune What's You know that? what it reminds me <laughs> of
1: What is this is this um is this music is this is this, is this yeah. Mr. Beverage's maggot Love this
0: Yeah getting thrown out of the, the getting thrown out of the alehouse for paying the band to play Mr. Beckett's <laughs> maggot too, many, too times. many times in a row uh. uh but yeah it's a great sequence and i think you know that's when um It's the name of a
1: dance. Okay, wait one second. It's, where does this come from? There's a bunch of these. There's also Jack's Maggot and Mr. Isaac's Maggot. The first collection. Do I not know what a maggot is? The first collection of modern English country dances since the 1820s, Maggot Pie, was published in 1932. Why would you name it that? (laughs) Why is maggot the name of a dance? Google, tell me. Musical maggots.
0: Why did the English like maggots? Oh,
1: that's weird. What up? Do you know what it is? No. Earworm. Fuck off. (laughs) Apparently. That's still not great though. It makes it too literal. The OED says that maggot is, quote, probably an alteration of matic, whose basic meaning is earthworm, but which is also given the sense in the north of England, a whim. I don't know why. I don't know why. We're falling into a trap. So really, this this whole thing
0: has in its origins the reign of John Uxglass, the Raven King. Uh, <laughs> it-
1: <laughs> I just... Uh, it means... Mm, somewhat, some, apparently, in this part of England, it means a favorite. Like... Um, Someone's favorite, like, oh yes, Mister Beverages Maggot, the maggot that Mister Beverages Mister Beverage loves.
0: Nevertheless, this very hot dance they do, the I maggot. Do not Please think call it a maggot. maggot. No, <laughs> no, it's not a <laughs> maggot. Everybody's doing the brand new maggot now. <laughs> uh.
1: All right, we're well, going to close all these windows because otherwise we're going to we basically found it. It's like someone's favorite whim. It's like a whim. It's like a thing that you like. And so you're like, oh yeah, Isaac's maggot. Play that one. Play the one Isaac likes. I would say if I could go back in time and change this, I would say they should use the word song. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they could just be like Mr. Beverage's Tune. Mr. Beverage's Wim is good though. Wim, Wim is good. Wim is great.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, Mr. Beverage's Wim. Ah yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, got it. Of course,
0: it. I mean I would probably assume that it's some sort of alcoholic drink at that point. Sure. Like, Mr. Beverage's Wim. <laughs> like yeah, give me give me two of those. I think they were serving them at uh, uh at the, the Western <laughs> I So mean, you drank one of them.
1: It was it was funny. We went to the Western <laughs> Packs. I expected there would be video game themed drinks, but it was actually all Jane Austen themed drinks. They knew we were coming so
0: yeah just they, um, they, they honored waypoint at the weston bar uh, i can't believe that they had
1: maggots. that they had uh uh the uh um mr collins chicken fingers <laughs> available
0: <laughs> and, and um, yeah and yet not the mr tom collins it was no weird. they didn't have the mr tom um, collins they couldn't
1: they couldn't get that one to work
0: yeah so in the wake of that, I also love the touch before Harriet arrives in the wake of her rescue from uh fr- uh you know from the from the teens. Mm-hmm. Um we do see Emma sitting at home playing the song they dance to. Yes. Uh which is a, again a gorgeous touch. Like clearly she doesn't fully know how much it's affected her yet, mm-hmm. but like it's it's sort of a moment she's trying to sort of stay within. Um, and anyway, so now Harriet comes in. She has been rescued from the teens, from the skater boys, mm-hmm. by Frank Churchill. And she's like, there is a special man that I am in love with. And Emma's like, Frank Churchill, God, he seems awesome. Yeah, he keeps randomly dragging every single woman in town. But I don't know. He seems great for you. I approve. God. But we shouldn't say his name. This is the. She cuts Harriet off and she's like, you know what? Let's not jinx it. Let's, I don't love let's that. Let's not be clear. I wish – Let's not
1: be clear. Yeah. I don't like it. I, I generally forced. dislike these types of stories. I think this I, – and I think the way that this all shakes out is part of why is we've gotten two types of we – we have two stories on, on, on offer here. One is the one in which Harry doesn't say that who she really means is Mr. Knightley and then we have the one in which – Emma learns that she means Mr. Knightley, and we get both. We get an episode of she thinks that it's uh Frank i keep uh what the fuck is his last name church church churchill churchill um that's frank churchill and and you know it's about her trying to play matchmaker still and trying to figure out like, but wait a second, what about me and Frank Churchill? I've been the one who's ah uh, but uh. and then the version of it where she is um. Needs to confront the fact that she is also in love with Mr. Knightley and has had – because she has moved too slow and because she has propped Harriet up, in fact, uh, she has to engage with with the fact that she has maybe fucked up and, and lost something. She could have had a, a relationship that means a lot to her. And I'm happy with it because, we get, because we, we get both. We do eventually get her doing this. But I would just as well have seen the story in which we – she has to linger and doubt – and worry about how she's how she's played things for even longer um i want I would love to read the version of the story in which Emma, at this point, Harriet tells Emma, "I am in love with your childhood best friend and the your next door neighbor and the person who you are just now starting to admit to yourself you have feelings for, uh, but instead, we kind of get the alibi that allows the Allows um, Emma to continue being her confidant and her accomplice in in the work at play, and that kind of like it's fine. I'm not. It's not a bad decision. It's just kind of like a pet. It's it's a pet peeve because I think Austen is up to telling that version of the story too. Because we see her tell it later in the book, later in the story, and it's strong. You know, and more of that would have been fine for me.
0: Yeah, I think there's almost like a. so, something I couldn't shake watching this, and I think it's there in the in the text, too, but you really feel this version. There's almost like other things. What's the way to put this? I feel like Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax are in the middle of their own story, yeah. and it's a Bronte story.
1: Right, right.
0: Like, it, this is not the end of their story. This is the middle part. You know, their childhood courtship, which happened... Somewhere else, like in you know there's a different book being written, and we are catching the middle chapters of their story and it's It's coming from a dark place, it has sort of a dark through line, and it's going to go to probably you know a a somewhat distressing place, given the way Frank Churchill is mm-hmm. um, and I feel like with this portrayal of this character like it's interesting you can you can tell Austin is imagining these other stories and these other relationships, but she's not quite portraying them in her main narratives as much in with, with, with all the brutal clarity uh, they otherwise could. Right. Like mm-hmm. I think there's, there's, I think there's a version of this where um, this whole thing would edge on tragedy almost. If what if night, like what if Knightley did begin to develop feelings for Harriet or Jane Fairfax. Right. And like, Emma truly had missed her moment. Um, you can you see that being an interesting direction for this to go too. Um, but we don't get that. Instead, we get kind of a a state of a, a delusion that Emma labors under, and then a quick resolution of it. Uh there, there's genuine pain and Ramola Gribe sells it very well, but it doesn't. The stakes don't ever feel very high on right. that score.
1: Yeah. I'm with you. So, we should keep moving.
0: <laughs> We're yeah. going
1: to get through it, right? We're going to do it. We Be- should go to uh we should go to the countryside. We sure should. I love the setup to all this countryside shit so much. These motherfuckers have never been beyond the the like gates of their town. It's so good. Did you read the book? Did you look in the book? The book is a picture of a cliff, Rob. That cliff looks real pretty. We should go there. How far away is it? 30 minutes? Okay. Let's make a day of it.
0: Let's carry a giant-ass picnic basket it's up so this hill. Um, and they do, by the way. I think it's them shown carrying it. I think it's the guests of the party. I think they're yeah. footmen who serve yes. the uh, serve the picnic. But in terms of like lugging a bunch of shit up there – uh, it does appear to be the guests themselves making sort of a festive day of it, lugging something that looks like a wicker treasure chest up a up, like freaking mountain,
1: up literally a place called Box Hill, which must be so beautiful to, to have a name like that. Um, and it it goes. Hmm. I guess we we have skipped over some smaller things, but that's fine. It goes poorly, is what I would well, say. We- we can fold in the
0: uh, Frank is terrible again. Yes. Uh, to Jane Fairfax. Yep. And is screwing around with her relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's starting to really piss off Knightley. Um, and he, he's also starting to get really annoyed at the way Emma continues to be the accomplice in this stuff. We also get more of a taste of Mrs. Elton uh who he's shown up with. Yes. Uh having having moved on from from Emma after being discouraged. Mrs. Elton is unbearable. Um just very much like a domineering PTA mom, I guess is yeah. the way I put it. Uh-huh. uh just some, like or the nightmare head of your condo board. Just any sort of uh, you know, petty petty fascist you'll encounter in uh ostensibly civic organizations. Uh but Emma wants to have a tiny little party. That's basically the she wants to go out and have a picnic with her pals at where the flies are, and
1: where there's a beautiful view of the countryside. It's gorgeous. I do want to be clear: like nature is cool, and they shoot this in such a way where you do get. Like what is so good about this view, the rolling hills behind them, the like some of the farms in the farmland in the distance, you know, a few estates that, that dot the countryside. Like yeah. I get why you would want to do this here. What is very hard is to understand why you wouldn't immediately understand that. Uh, again, she hasn't been paying attention, but that the ways in which Frank is talking about how impressed he is with Emma and how from the very first moment he's found her irresistible are making various people at the, at the, the picnic uncomfortable as shit. And that like she just kind of decides to double down with making people feel bad. Um, it makes me doubt her wit which is the thing that is core to who she's presented herself as, right? Because this all eventually builds to a moment in which um, she insults. I I mean, I guess I I was going to say the, the, the least of them, um, but I guess Harriet is probably technically.
0: uh, No, but I think it's no, but Harriet Harriet is young. Like this is, yeah, this is the thing. Like she skewers Miss Bates. Yeah in front of all their friends. And it's like one of those things where it's a good line by the way. Like it is it is a good line. I understand how you say that thing without thinking it through because it's like damn they teed that up. I got to I got to swing at it. Uh nevertheless, she just demolishes poor Miss Bates in front of all their friends. And it doesn't play because she's so sweet and she's so well-meaning and she her circumstances are so hard that it's like Watching a friend kick a puppy Yeah And all the air leaves box hell Just blows right off that mountaintop And the entire party suffocates and dies and That's yeah. the end of Emma No, uh, But everyone is like well peace out Gonna go can I guess you walk imagine, around this box Can hell. you fucking
1: imagine that you have a friend Who is Who is too verbose for their own good Maybe you know Austin Walker And <laughs> and we're out, we're hanging out because the whole picture is so good and we're like, oh, there should be a game where we just all have to say a couple things that are like, you know, funny or bad or whatever and then you were like uh, and I'm like, haha, yeah I could definitely say a couple of things that are, I could definitely say some things and you were like, yeah, some things you wouldn't be able to shut your fucking mouth, Austin and then, one fuck you, (laughs) two the party is just like yikes, gotta go. Everybody is just like, oh, that's it. We should all step away for this a is, moment.
0: This is a group of people who were just laid out in a torpor by the heat. Yes. And they're climb up this hill. Like a minute ago, it was like a bunch of like exhausted, sleeping, like, uh, you know, water buffalo or something by the watering hole, just like completely camped out. And immediately they're like, well, uh, I'm going to go walk somewhere else yeah me too i'm gonna come with you and everyone scatters
1: it sucks Um, it's so rough it's so rough because the i I think the hardest thing about it is that miss bates miss bates is who tees it up miss bates is the one who says like oh well you know i'll be i'll be great because i can totally say three very dull things and emma's response is like Yeah, the problem is going to be you're going to end up saying way more than three dull things, right? The problem is you will not be limited in number. And it is – when someone is already being self-deprecating in that way, The response, especially someone who has lost what they had once and whose presence probably makes them feel some small – like the reason she makes that joke is because she doesn't feel like she belongs in this crowd anymore. And she has to nod at that in order to feel okay being there. You know what it
0: is? It's like when like when you're poor and you're out with wealthier yes, friends. Yes. You're out at dinner and you know you can't afford the food. Yes. And somebody is just like, you know what? I'll cover you. But instead of saying that, they say something like, we both know you don't have the fucking money.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've this. been there so many yeah, times.
0: That's what it is. It's like. On the one hand, you were including this person, but also, man, you took this moment to really like call out the fact that you don't fit with us anymore. We don't really like you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we, it's just a brutal moment.
1: Do we want to play the poorly done Emma scene? Um, or badly done Emma scene, rather? It's only yeah, a minute 30. Should. It's it's, short, a, it's a crucial scene. And it's crucial. I'm going to send it over to you, Kato. Um Can you do that, Kato? Let me queue it up. What are you, um, what chat or what thing are you on? Just directly to you. All right, I'll send both to both of you. So we are on the same video. Nope, not watching Split. No, we're not watching Split. We did that. This thing really wants me to watch Split again. Don't. Did you buy it?
0: Where, where is Emma?
1: I linked you. I linked. No, you, I rented it. I linked you the video that we should just click go at. That way we're linked up.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. When should I start it?
1: Ah, uh, we'll count you in. Ready? Yep. do uh, you have the volume on Carter. Cool. Three, two, one, play. Oh, the march over.
3: Emma. Have you seen Harriet? I think it's time to leave. Mr. Weston will be calling us
2: back. Emma, I I must I must speak with you. I I cannot see you behaving so without speaking my mind. Badly done, Emma. How could you be so unfeeling towards Miss Bates? Hmm? I did not think it possible. A woman of her age and situation. I couldn't help it.
3: How could I? Nobody could have resisted. It was not so very bad, but I dare say she didn't understand.
2: Oh, I assure you she did. She has talked of nothing else since. I wish you could have heard her. How patient you must have been with her all these years when you find her company so tiresome.
3: I'm sorry, of course. She is very good-hearted, everybody knows, but she is also, you must admit, a little bit ridiculous. Yes!
2: And were she prosperous, were she a woman of fortune, I would allow you some liberties. Were she your equal, but she's not! She is poor, Emma. She once lived comfortably, but now the longer she lives, the poorer her situation will be. She should attract your compassion, not your contempt!
1: Hands behind his back.
0: Seems pretty good in uh, the 96 version, too.
1: What is the version of that?
0: No, it's basically it's, – it's actually very similar, okay. right? So they, they ended up coming down on very similar readings. I would say the 96 ver- version is even a little more heated. Oh, interesting. Um, because Paltrow plays it off more as – so Garai, you can tell, clearly knows on some level she, she knows she fucked up. Right. But, like, doesn't really want to face the degree to which she just overstepped. Paltrow plays it off as Emma is so self-absorbed that really it doesn't even register with her. Interesting how vicious she'd been. Yeah, and so Knightley just like blows his stack at that point, uh, because like it's like the that version's Emma doesn't even really get that there was an offense given.
1: Ugh, um, that seems impossible to watch, because at yeah. least this one, like, there is the degree to which even as they return to even as as Knightley walks up she is like i think it's time to go <laughs> and she might not think that she has a that her offense matters in the long run but she understands what happened to that party and why um yeah. and and like that opens her up in such a way that she could that that he doesn't need to go off all that way you know it's more of like I've, you know what you've done you know or you know better.
0: I think I think one good thing about the way in general the relationship is built around sparring uh-huh. a lot and arguing is that it does feel to me less like correcting someone from a position of power as you would a child and more a genuine call out for a friend who is yeah. turning into an asshole before your eyes. Yeah. Like, that is the arc of the story, right? Is that this isn't he is watching a young girl turn into a, you know, risk turning into a bad woman, right? right? This is not a Lydia Bennett who, like, oh, we must correct her, her uh, you know, morals and uh, conduct. It is more I know you know better and you are choosing to be a dick. And we have all needed to have that told to us at some point probably and Mm -hmm. we've all had to tell that. But the question is not everyone is lucky enough to get that message at the right moment from the right person. Um, And not everyone is lucky enough to be able to bring it across in the right way and actually like have it land. Um,
1: And I think part of that is like – part of that does, like you said, come from the fact that their relationship is one that's already about the two of them pushing on who the other is. In order that they come around to their to their view of the world, and again, I think that this adaptation is very good at making you think that that is about two different perspectives, not just about a smart one and a dumb one or something. Right? It's not one person knows and one person doesn't, or one person has you know comes of of means and one person like it's very much around that. But I also think there's something else here that's tough, which is or that that makes it work, which is one. I mean, his his, his fundamental lesson is like don't punch down right like if you're going to fucking swing wildly don't punch down don't hit hit someone who's already on the ground um but the second is that he does put it in terms that she would understand or that terms that we know she is conscious of because of that previous conversation about pretty faces and means and merit and what men want right he knows that she has this vein of justice in her in her heart, that she does know that the world is arranged not solely by the merits of those who do work. Yes, she is ridiculous. And if she was rich and ridiculous, fire away because she would be better off to be punched in the nose. But through no misdeed of her own, she has wound up penniless and a mascot for us to play around with walk carefully in those scenarios and you know obviously burn the whole fucking thing down from my perspective we have again a sort of austin uh uh, leading man who is good to the poor but who could never imagine eradicating the idea of poverty um but this is effective because I, i there is a degree to which you know, One of the things that we know is that is that privilege is not something that exists only on one axis um, and that as two men on a podcast right now that, that because of scheduling has left us with two cis dudes on, on this podcast, there are perspectives that aren't being positioned here that like we also need to be careful not to punch down, right? I am um, fine with this scenario in which he is saying to an equal or someone who is at his social class, be aware of that social class and and it's coming from a place in which he knows she is aware of that social class because she knows that the game is rigged too
0: i would only quibble with i don't think she's aware of class do you think she's like she yeah. is loosely like she refers yeah. to the idea of it with regard to harriet but by and large, she only brings it up because he's pointed out to her and she's been oblivious to that point. Right. And then she wants to deny its reality with regard to Harriet. But in general, her world is so small. Yeah. She is blind to the power she has within that world. And that blindness, like recognizing that she is in a position of privilege and power and people can't tell her to knock shit off and will put <laughs> up with stuff that they need, that they should not have to from her. Right. Her blindness to that, her refusal to acknowledge that has necessitated her erasing class distinction from her acquaintance because awareness of that would force her to conduct herself differently and like consider power dynamics. But as we've seen repeatedly throughout this, Emma doesn't do that on some level because she doesn't want to, but that also stops her from fully appreciating How differently the world treats her than it does treat other people.
1: Right. Well, she – is there a degree then to which in seeing Highbury as the entire world and seeing that she can talk to whoever she wants in Highbury and her circle can have whoever she wants to have in it in it. There is a way in which it's not only that she's a lighted class from her worldview but that because of her mobility inside of this constrained space – She doesn't understand the ways in which others are constrained in their mobility, and she doesn't want to leave anyway, right? Like that's the thing. For her, the world is just insofar as anyone can be her equal in her own mind. If you're smart enough or funny enough, as long as someone isn't whispering in her ear about how bad someone's hair is – Miss uh Miss Bates is only not her equal because she's too talkative. Miss Bates is only not her equal because she is ridiculous. It is not the case that Mrs. Bates Miss Bates rather is not her equal because she's poor. It's it's or that because she's unmarried. Emma doesn't give a fuck about any of those things. Which it's, it's almost a much darker version of this, right? Like that that or it goes back to that to the Harriet stuff and and recast it much much more darkly in that light, which is Yes, Harriet is my equal because she is here and because I want her to be my equal. I am like queen of who counts, um, which really undercuts any sort of proto-feminism in that initial scene by a lot. Which, but, I, but in that original scene, I do think that there is – there is such a – she strikes something true, right? So she's just contradictory in this sense, right? She does no, recognize –
0: I, I think she is contradictory, but I think she's contradictory in the way that a lot of us, like particularly people who are a little bit a little bit out of step with their time, yeah. uh, in some of their views, but still inherit other aspects of the the mores and standards of the time. I think that's the thing, right? Is like she doesn't yet really have a language or a framework for seeing all of this. Yeah. What she sees are these disparate. What she lays out isn't really a feminist case. It is a feminist feeling that will eventually lead to a to feminist a case, case yeah. right? She's like something, something about – right.
1: Harriet is just as capable as me. This is a true fact. How do I connect that to the world? Uh, Harriet should marry someone who's I'm a woodhouse. Right, right. Don't you know you, who I, I know? am? Or like, or <laughs> her, her solution is not to eradicate class distinction or to destroy gender itself. It is – she should marry a rich guy. She deserves to be married to a rich guy <laughs> and that is never going to be a solution that actually addresses that core feeling that she has, that, that she senses a, a, a disproportionate uh, a, you know, inequity on, in certain people who don't deserve it, right? Like that isn't going to be solved in the, in the abstract or in the broad case, but she is happy to remedy it with Band-Aid solutions like I'm going to bring you some food now or what if you married a rich guy?
0: Um, I do think in her making amends to Miss Bates, I do like that the offer she makes to Miss Bates goes beyond food. It does. It does. She I, basically says, there. you are. No, but but I think it's important because I'm it not is. sure that's in the text. She basically says, you are backstopped. Mm-hmm. We are not going to let things get, like, dire right. for you. Right. Like, you do not need to worry about things getting worse. We have you, mm-hmm. um, and in that moment, I like. I believe that. Like, I believe uh, she is so affected by. We like, should set up that scene,
1: which is that like after after she has been told off by by Mister Knightley, she goes to Bate to Miss Bates and Mrs. Bates and to uh, uh, Is Jane there? Who's the Who's the third body in that scene? Yeah, she's Jane is, in stay, is staying Jane in the other Jane room. Jane is hiding in the other room, right? Because Jesus Christ, Emma, um, and. <laughs> Goes with this with this basket of food, and basically – she doesn't say sorry, but what she does say is, "You don't need to worry, like you will." Which again, really just re-inscribes his view that is like, as long as I am here in Highbury, <laughs> you will not want for anything, you know. Um, but at least is a compassionate. Uh, it is again this vision that we've talked about from Austin of like the compassionate wealthy, right? The wealthy who yeah. will, will take care of their lessers.
0: Though, does it also imply a kind of basic income guarantee? Hmm. <laughs> like, who, they don't have the language for it yet. No. But I don't know. Maybe this Emma is like, you know, maybe what we should just do is directly fund them. Ugh. And instead of just giving them food, just give them money. Just give them and money. Like Yeah. Uh, I do think, by the way, there's an important line at the end of the novel I think is worth bearing in mind here. Mm-hmm. This is after everyone is married off. Harriet has gotten with that nice farmer. Um, Emma is, you know, going to be married too nightly. And let me know what you think, make of this line. Harriet, necessarily drawn away by her engagements with the Martins, was less and less at Hartfield, which was not to be regretted. The intimacy between her and Emma must sink. Their friendship must change into a calmer sort of goodwill. Unfortunately. fortunately what ought to be and must be seemed already beginning and in the most gradual, natural manner. Hmm. And I have always felt, like when I read it back then, to me it always felt like a sad line. Mm -hmm. That it was this acknowledgement. And reading it now, I'm not sure, maybe it's an acknowledgement also that adult friendships are harder once you have a family and you have a partner. But I've also always felt that, now that Harriet is Mrs. Martin and Emma's going to be Mrs. Knightley, mm-hmm. that class is reasserting itself here that it has to. Mm-hmm. That like it was one thing for them to be two unmarried women uh just running around the countryside and, you know, hanging out. It is another for them as, you know, respective you know, co-heads of their households
4: right. to be spending
0: time together. Um and I think that's an important thing to bear in mind hanging over all of this is the way Austin sort of epilogues the Harriet and uh, Emma relationship is that it's going to wither to a large degree.
1: Is that also part of the thing that does not get said here, I think, at all, which is about what the marriage state is, right? Which we've talked about previously, but here – here, because marriage is not a thing to be desired, it is also has not been positioned as a thing to be feared. Um, and also because the matches at play are about trying to line up positive ones, both for social climbing and for romantic interest. Like, it's a lot of like, ah, I'm, I'm making a match. I'm making a love match. I'm not making uh, – I'm. she's yeah. not a matchmaker only in the sense of social climbing. She's a matchmaker in a sense of um, paired um, – uh uh there's a word I'm looking for here and not finding it. Um paired character, right? Like ah, these two make a make a good couple in in the contemporary sense of good couple, not simply the the a good pairing of of, you know, social standing and and something that's beneficial for both ha- both households. Um and I wonder if here on top of the the class assertion, which you're not wrong about, there is also what is natural is that the house is complete. We no longer need these extraneous pairings. Um, mm-hmm. What what does Emma need for? Now, Emma has her father and Emma has uh, Knightley. She was always someone who was lonely, but now she's not lonely anymore. Um, and for Harriet, that never seemed a concern, right? Harriet – Harriet's loneliness was only at not being accepted at the dance in some to some regard.
0: We could argue the only bad things that have happened to Harriet are from being around Emma. Oh, hundred percent Like literally, when we meet her, yes. she is best friends with the Martins. Yes. She loves this group of people who think they're gonna be her future family. And they, yeah. And like and they, they all hang out and have a great time. And Emma's like, What if you didn't hang out with them? Yeah. And instead you hang out with me and this preacher who hates you uh if i think i want to there's two things i want to call out from right before the box hill disaster one again frank churchill a weird energy through this whole sequence um like clearly the the lies and deceit are starting to get to him and he's starting to get increasingly squirrely about getting his um like basically he just wants his aunt to die which you know at this point i kind of get it um (laughs) But it's, it, he's starting to crack under that pressure and he's sick of like living this way. But at the same time, you keep, you're the one who is making this miserable. You are the, you are, you are the one who's making this feel toxic and awful. Um, but also I think I do want to shout out the scene with Michael Gambon. It's really the, probably the most he's given to do in this, uh, in, in this portrayal. Um there is a scene right before they go to Box Hill. He can't accompany them, right. but Knightley has made everything has has arranged things nicely for him, which means he's left a roaring fire on a summer day mm-hmm. in the drawing room, and lots of like doodads and gadgets for uh, Mister Woodhouse to fiddle with.
1: Yeah, there's a but bef- he's a term for them. I forget what they're called, but
0: he's like looking this collection.
1: At, yeah, you know? he's like looking at a weird shell or something, right? Yeah,
0: like like it's it's weird. He's just, it, basically like they're perpetual motion machines. This right, is how or, it feels, right? right? Or, or like, yeah. you know those little like desk gadgets. Uh, anyway, before she leaves, he turns to Emma, and he basically like tries, in his way, to apologize for. He thinks he's been a burden. Mm-hmm. He knows he's been a burden, and he knows that not everything he fears and not everything he puts on her is necessarily rational. And he feels kind of aggrieved by it. He, you know what I mean? He, he he feels, he he has this moment where it starts to dawn on him how often he has trapped Emma or or he worries he has trapped Emma Mm -hmm. uh, when she should be out exploring, when she should be out seeing the world. And she's also had those fears. There's this beautiful scene between her and Knightley where she says, do you think it's odd that my sisters had five children and I haven't been there for the birth of any of them. Yeah. that I've only met them when they come up here. And I think it's just a beautiful scene. Um, And there's no resolution to it. And I don't think there's any resolution needed, but it is a nice recognition that um, Emma being there for her father was something she was like happy to do and something that did bring her a great deal of like joy in her life that there has been a cost and a strain to it. Yeah. And I think it's an important beat. And I think it's, again, beautifully carried off by both the players.
1: Do you feel in that scene that that is news to Emma in a sense that, that she has, that if the tension, so tension exists certainly by nature of the reality, which is she may have married, right? Maybe she would have found marriage more appealing uh if her father had not been in the picture or if other siblings had been around, um, uh, maybe that's a scenario in which she would have left the house. Um, so like there's material – the material relations reflect that. But she is so quick to dismiss his apology in that moment. And it's hard to know is that her being like, sure, 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 sure. We're not going to get into it right now because I have other things on my plate. Or do you think that's a genuine – a uh, response in which she feels like he's wrong, that like no, you have not been a burden to me. this is the life I am choosing for me, I
0: read it as genuine, yeah, like me I think too. at every turn, like I think first of all, I don't think she's fully recognized with I don't think she's fully certain did I choose this, or did I just talk myself mm. into not going out in the world right like she has like she is starting it's starting to dawn on her that some aspects of her life are weird mm-hmm. and she hasn't quite figured out whether that's something from her or something from her circumstances. Yeah. Um So I'm not sure she's completely solved that for herself, but I think the thing I don't doubt for a minute is that by and large, she has been happy, Um, you know, and she does love being there for her father mm-hmm. and, and importantly here, The other most important person in the world has been Knightley. Right. And he's always been there. You know what I mean? Like she has been – she's been somewhat lonely. She hasn't been given the opportunities to travel or she's not taken those opportunities. Mm -hmm. But she's been happy and had a lot of joy and companionship. And you can't say that for every life lived.
1: So she goes and says, you know, don't worry about about Miss Fairfax's future. Don't worry about your future to Miss Bates like – you have friends in Highbury, right? Like we're we are good. You're Everyone's going to be good. Yeah. And she goes home and sees Mister Knightley talking to her father. And in her mind, I, you know, kind of the whole thing is like, I've gone. I've made it right with Miss Bates. I am ready to like make all good with with Mister Knightley. And this is when she learns that he is leaving. That that he is going to to go away on a substantial trip uh, for. Some amount of time. Um, he'd been planning it for a while. Um, th- does he specifically say London or am I projecting that? No, he's going to go visit his brother. Oh, you're right. Where is – wait, where is his brother? Is his brother in, in, London. in London, which again so, okay. is not that far away. Real quick, just a quick thing about the
0: nightlies. Yes. I have the strong sensation. Dunwell seems well cared for but also old, a yeah. little bit gloomy. Unloved. A little bit worn. Yeah. Yeah. And I have this feeling that, like, Knightley feels a little stuck at Dunwell. Mm-hmm. Like, he like he has to be the guy who, like, is in the big house and, yeah. like, managing the estate. But his brother, you get the sense, has gone into trade. Yeah. His brother is off, like, being a businessman in the city and, like, doing pretty well for himself and, like, having this really, like, rich, full personal life with tons of kids. Mm-hmm. Um. As we have seen uh you know from the start, uh the guy's just a love god, really. <laughs> uh just uh out of control. But it's interesting to me the way that like in a weird way, uh Knightley's brother, who's gone to the city with with Isabel, uh seems to be living a very modern life in some ways, you know, <laughs> a minivan full of kids, family vacations. Uh, and you know, getting a getting a business going. Mm-hmm. And Knightley's home feels a little bit like a tomb. Not a not, you know, not a
1: bad one. No. But it does feel a little airless. There is and like part of the thing that's funny about that is he goes to see his brother and he carries that with him. Or at least maybe one of the things he learns is like that attitude about the world is not caught only in done well. Right. It is, there's the great moment in which, uh, 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 his sister-in-law, um, says like, you're not yourself. You don't, you haven't been like, you didn't go over to our friend's place for dinner. You and the, the boys didn't go hunt frogs <laughs> in the, near the river or whatever. Um, you're normally, you're normally not like this. Uh, and, there is he is in that he Dun Dunwell came with him. I keep wanting to say Dunwall. This yeah. is a real problem. Uh, but no, I, which I again speaks to the Dunwall Dunwell uh, connection. Yeah. Um, there is he is he has been he has carried that dourness and the feeling of dead endedness with with him. I, I hear part of what I get part of the vibe that I get from Emma and Knightley is these are two people who have known their whole lives that they would be married and have fought as hard as they can to find a different way forward and have almost mm-hmm. done it. And now facing those other realities and and facing also the possibility that increasingly through the rest of the story that that inevitability seems suddenly so less inevitable, they have had to like think about what their futures are. And also they haven't pulled the trigger. They could have pulled the trigger for years and didn't. And are now kind of like – there is something like – there is a degree of of, uh, 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 frustration over the deferment of this decision. When something feels inevitable like that, like – Oh, uh, yeah. One of these years, one of these years, we'll settle down. Of course, Emma and I will settle down. Of course, Knightley is always in my back pocket. We can play the field a little bit. We can have fun. We can be, we can be grown in this way. To suddenly have that thing seem like it may not come together, and to suddenly seem this thing that seemed inevitable seem necessary or seem like it was actually maybe the best option instead of just the one like by coincidence you happened to be with someone your whole life who was fantastic and you didn't pull the trigger on that and you thought that you might find something better and now you've seen what the you've seen who the fuck frank churchill is and wished that he'd stayed away for another 20 years actually Um, everything feels so fraught and I I think it sits on him most – I mean obviously she – we get a great scene of her in tears in her bedroom after he leaves as the like the sun slowly, painstakingly like rises over her. It's rough. It's great.
0: Oh my god. The scene where Harriet reveals that it's nightly she's oh, interested in.
1: Oh, that scene is great.
0: The, uh, Garai's performance there. Where she is losing her shit but trying not uh-huh. to like clearly lose it. Like her her repeated like but you wait, no, no, you, you told said- me no. Yeah. yeah, like this can't be happening. Like this like literally like her world is shattering right now and she's trying to like keep it together. But the scene ends with her being like, That's great. I'm happy I'm for you. So happy I need for you to leave my home right now, please. Like Leads her to the door and like basically shoves her out of it. Uh But it is so good because it is, you see that moment where like, just as Emma is realizing, like maybe this is a future she does want to explore. Mm -hmm. It is being ripped from her. Uh, by her friend who shouldn't who doesn't even go here it's kind of uh-huh. Emma's, yeah you know this none of this would be happening mm-hmm. if I just stayed away uh it's it's a great moment um
1: I think some of the like potential flash forwards are a little hokey for me we get like the vision of her and Mr Knightley with a baby and her you know, the, well no that was that was oh that was not you're right that is not. You're right. That's one I was reading the, uh, other
0: Knightley kids. You're right. Uh, you the, right. the niece or nephew. You're right. Um, but the ones where like he is back at Dunwell and mm-hmm. he imagines it. Although I guess crucially, when he imagines it with, when anyone imagines Knightley being happy in Dunwell, mm-hmm. the home is filled with life and new decoration yeah, yeah, and yeah. a different light, rather than sort of the cold, like museum like quality right. uh, that it has I, has with him. But it is a bit
1: hokey. It is. Well, and then so finally we get the final proposal that she, you know, maybe I don't, maybe I don't mind the bit earlier where she doesn't let Harriet say the name because she does it a fucking again. She does it again. He comes over and is like, I got to tell you something. He comes back. He's in such bad sorts in London. He returns. He goes to, to, uh, Hart, Hartley Hartford, whatever the name of Emma's Hartfield, Hartfield, uh, and is like, Hey, I got a secret to tell you. uh, you know, um, first of all, he's like, oh, hey, did you hear about about Frank Churchill's dead dead aunt? Wow, that that was fucking ridiculous. Right. All that stuff sucked. Anyway, um, I got to tell you something. And she's like, no, I I don't want to. Don't know.
0: say it. It can't be unsaid. Yeah, exactly. which if you ever want to stop someone asking you out dead in their fucking do tracks, it. that is that is the thing you say. So quick thing, by the way. By the way, crucial detail about yours truly. Yes. The first time I tried to ask out my partner, Uh she ran away. Uh, Like literally uh, and like it would like literally did the whole like shut the conversation off uh, and just took off like pretty much into the night. And so like I identify strongly with Knightley in this moment Mm -hmm. because like it's the. Okay, I have clearly misread, I've misread this the scenario. Thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have fucked up badly. I made a huge mistake. And, right. And <laughs> luckily, uh that didn't like luckily like MK's behavior in the next day reassured me that like I hadn't fucked up. Like I still didn't know what had happened, but mm-hmm. like everything seemed normal. So <laughs> I went into my wind-up the next night. And that time, like, I was allowed to get through it and it took. Okay. But, like, I've definitely had the, like, nope, don't say it. Mm-hmm. Don't you, don't you mm-hmm. continue
1: with that line of thought, mon frère. I, I on, do not want to hear it. I have been on both sides of this. Uh, I have been both the person who I'm laughing because, Kato, I just told you this story about a <laughs> grad school relationship that I knew would be on the table the second I met the person. I met someone in grad school and was like, oh, we're going to date. And then I was like, I don't want to live in Canada. I don't want to live in this town that I'm in. I'm going to do everything in my power to be sure that we are never in a situation where either of us can act on this impulse that I sense so obviously. I see myself in this moment so well in Emma because it is the realization of like, just to, to open that can of worms. And, you know, Emma thinks here that she that 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 Knightley is about to say, I'm in love with Harriet because she has given herself over to that. But to even the opposite, the thing of they haven't said these words yet comes from a place of like fear of constraint and like possibility and everything else, right? And a fear of hurting this other person. At least that's what it was for me. What it was for me was like, I know I'm going to move back to New York I can set or somewhere else. Right? I was applying to jobs in Arizona. I was applying to jobs in California. I was. It was my yeah. fourth and a half year in grad school. It's time to get the fuck out. That's how this goes. Either I'm teaching somewhere in a year, I'm writing on a video game, or I'm a games journalist. How is this going to shake out? And for me, in that particular relationship, I could tell the intensity that it was was going to be a situation that – broke both of our hearts and so when i see emma and knightley push away on it push away at it push away at it refuse to address it refuse to address it have this dance that confirms it completely and then still refuse to to uh, address the issue i get why knightley doesn't say no wait you have to hear this right because there's a version of this where he goes like no wait i have to tell you i'm sorry but i cannot do it right when darcy steps in the room he says i can no longer keep to myself how, uh, how, whatever I admire you, right? How ardently I ardently. admire and love you, right? M- yeah. Mr. Knightley can keep it to himself because he's afraid of what it might mean to say it.
0: Well, and he already feels, and yeah, like her not wanting to hear it means he's already right. rejected. And yes. they just need to go, like, go back to pretending this isn't there. Yes. And it'll be fine. And you can at least still be friends and still care about each other that way. Yeah. Uh, but do not continue with this. You'll fuck it all up. And so he flees. Right. Well, no, he. I think he.
1: Well, yeah. So he starts. He to, does. He does the walk away on the gravel road, and finally, we get the bookend, which is she chases after him this time.
0: Also, thing I want. This is a thing I want to call attention to. Because mm-hmm. I can't figure out if they're using filters, mm-hmm. post processing on the on the digital like image, yeah, or if they somehow commanded the sun, or they just got incredibly lucky. Uh huh. The scene begins in like blinding daytime light. Yeah. Everyone is squinting at each other. It is harsh. Um, just both of them like are having trouble seeing. Both of them are like squinting against the sun. Af- as he makes his declaration, it's still bright out, but a cloud passes over something. Mm-hmm. Like things get cooler. Things be like the the the, the sky sort of darkens a little bit yeah. and it becomes like a more comfortable sort of cloudiness. And then she chases after him. And again, like, that cloud cover continues to thicken, and they stand in front of Hartfield as she says, please, I stopped you from saying, please say what you're going to say. I'll hear it as a friend. Just just tell me. And somehow, it just genuinely looks the way, like, a summer day can completely transform because of one, like, giant, like, massive cloud yeah totally completely like passing over you know completely recast
1: the day the wind catches her hair here right like it seems cool it seems like you've gone from the hot midday to the cool you know late late afternoon um and all of that tension finally gets released um and you know his his i love his confession right because his confession of love is just like So tell me, have I no chance of succeeding, right? It is not even – because at this point, it's been recontextualized in her saying I don't want to hear it, right? So for him, he's like, am I wasting my time basically? Like it's always been this. It was always going to be this. You know I don't know how to make speeches. Like what are we doing?
0: And I love you too much to even make one. Right. Like that's – and it's a great line, right? Like If I loved you less, I might
1: be able to talk more. Big mood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. That's one thing we don't have in common. I've always pretty much had the words on command. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. maybe I would better, I would, would better, better have been served yeah. by yeah. not.
1: Yeah. Oh, so many uh, letters I would unsend, Rob Zacks. Oh, so handwritten many letters,
0: handwritten. Of course.
1: of course, yeah, man, of course, Fuck. of course. Oh yeah, no,
0: there's uh, there there are drawers full of letters that were left behind long ago. Uh, Got to dump them. Got to get rid of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Got to get rid of them. But I did some man, email counts.
1: Dramatic. I'm also glad I don't have anymore. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. No, thank you,
0: losing. Thank you, Outlook, for taking uh, emails off a server truly. and then losing that computer because that turned out to be a really great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, along with a lot of AIM transcripts.
1: Oh, um, yeah. Uh huh.
0: Yeah. Uh. But no. Uh, shout outs though to being that asshole like in the two thousands who was like, give me, <sighs> your, give me your physical address. I need I to will, send you something. I will correspond with you.
1: I need to send you a letter and a mixtape. I burned.
0: Yes. Oh my god.
1: I sent good letters. <laughs> I sent good mixtapes. I sent good uh, both, but
0: yeah. But it's great, so she realizes that he's in love with her. Um she does not know what to say. It's, and she like it, it is this way in the book, and it plays well really here. She is so happy she does not know how to respond. And so long after all doubt is removed from the scene, <laughs> Knightley is still not sure where he stands. Yeah. Uh, and he sort of like very cautiously like comes in for a kiss and it's a beautiful scene and bam, hard cut to her running it's into his, so into his so office and Dunwall. Wait, Dunwall. no,
1: cancel it all. <laughs> we can't.
0: It's, it's I love you, but I couldn't possibly break my father's heart
1: <sighs> by marrying you. By marrying you and moving next door.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so good. It's so good. And he was like, yeah, no, I've, I've thought about that. It's covered. Here's here's the deal. We're going to live there. Um, which, this is, boy, this is a heroic move, I got to say.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Like, the house isn't that big. Like, it's, like, it's clearly a nice house. Yes. It is clearly, like, a gorgeous, like, small mansion. But it's not kind of the rambling castle that Dunwell is. No. And also, like, Emma's dad seems like he might be a lot... He does, but, and and I guess he tacitly admits this. He's like, look, I might walk back to my house every now a couple and then, of times a day for yeah. my health, but like, look, I get it. You need, you know, you need a place for your board games.
1: There's a, we're, a we're another great little moment there where uh, they walk back over to to Hartfield and like you don't even you know they're about to have the conversation with her father and you just get the shot from behind Emma's back as he reaches over and grabs her hand hidden behind them and that's just another great little
0: touch there's so many good intimate touches yeah. in this like it is so well acted and directed in that sense
1: yeah um and then that's it right like things kind of fade off you know as the wedding's happen and the there's like final conversation with Frank. Uh that's like, you know, hey. That was a thing. That was a thing I did. Ha ha. I know, I know people are gonna be mad at me. Ha ha. But I'm I'm good now. My aunt's dead and I get to marry the person I love. Bye. uh <laughs> which is a lot. Um, and then we get the like them going off to their honeymoon, which is yet another cliff facing this time the sea instead of the country which you know
0: it actually worked for the, the, yeah. when when she realizes where they're going i look the moment got to me like the first time literally to realize it's like the fucking vault dweller leaving uh-huh. <laughs> leaving the vault right it's like it's her first time seeing the ocean yeah. like that moment did like actually get me
1: it's good. I, the ocean is big. She has not seen much of the world. How how will she know what to, to make of, of a space like this? You know, uh, there there is actually there is like something pretty beautiful about about the metaphor there, right? Like oh, the the yeah. picnic on Box Hill is looking down at the county that they're from, and then her honeymoon is looking out onto the world beyond and all that she might not know, except for the small moments when she like gestures at ireland with regards to jane fairfax weirdly she doesn't know what the fuck the world is she doesn't know where things are she doesn't know who people are um and you 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 are left with a great sense of possibility you know these two make a good team already and imagine they will make a better one in these final moments right like it works, it works, yeah. it works. It's a great, it's it a great is. adaptation. I like it a lot. I'm curious about the the 1996 adaptation, the Gwyneth Paltrow one, which I've not seen. Um, it's played more pure rom com. Oh, interesting. Okay. Like it's it's very. I like, can see that though. The pieces are here for it. You know.
0: Yeah, but I think Emma being a little bit the worst is very little mm-hmm. in that telling. Whereas I think this one reckons a little more seriously with. The heaviness of some of the things people are dealing with in this story mm-hmm. and uh both Emma's less attractive qualities. Sure. As well as some of the real like pain and hesitation that they flow from. I uh
1: I'm curious about that. I need I mean like when I I've looked up like what are the lists of all the adaptations, and there are so many. Did you know that the same year that there was the 96 uh, Gwyneth Paltrow film, there was also a, a BBC Emma that year that had Kate Beckinsale as Emma. So you're, you have Emma, Emma adaptations on deck. There are like a dozen or something. So Wait. Uh-huh.
0: I just found one on Amazon.
1: It's a different one? From
0: 1995.
1: This can't be right. That's what I'm saying.
0: I don't see Beckinsale in it, but I do see. Um, oh, maybe says so Claire Higgins, David Rintoul, Elizabeth Gar- Who? What is this?
1: I don't know what that is. Is that a different Emma? The word maybe Emma. Stacking them up. It could be a non-Austin Emma. There's lots of Emmas out there.
0: Oh, sorry. This is a Pride and Prejudice. Oh,
1: oh, oh, there's your problem.
0: But then, what is it doing in '95? I, you know, this must have been like a, a second, pu- like publication or something. I don't know. This makes no sense. I'm gonna start watching it now. You
1: should watch it now. We should we should end this podcast, and you should go watch that and let me know how it is. As we continue down our year of Jane Austen, somehow that we've that we've started. The same from '95, man. Well, it's just Mark. There's drawn? no ways
0: from '95. What? Who? Yeah, Mark '95. But like, who the, else is in it? The. Uh, literally, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> Uh, like I, they aren't actors I've heard of, man. Uh, <laughs> Claire Higgins, David know. Rintoul, Elizabeth Garvey, at all? Oh, I know them.
1: Who are et they? All. You just maybe Claire Higgins was in the Golden Compass. Ah, uh, Pride. Wait, are you sure you're right? You're watching a Pride and Prejudice because this says Claire Higgins has never been in Pride and Prejudice.
0: It's Are you Claire watching EastEnders, dude? I. <laughs> this is so weird. This so it also it opens what what appears to be like a version of the Cheers intro. Um, oh, sh- I see weird. it. It's
1: 1980. It's 1980. Uh, she plays okay. Kitty Bennett. Okay. Um, this is 1980. Someone write in and let me know how this 1980 is, Janine. If you're listening, you let me know how this 1980s 81 is. I know you've watched it. We need to investigate all of this. I wonder what the best one is. We so was it Natalie who was interested in seeing the Laurence Olivier one, and then we watched like I a think scene I talked her out and of it that. was like, mm, yeah, it's not what I want. No, I mean,
0: the thing is, neither of us has seen it, but we both looked at a key scene. Right, like, are you going to like this Pride and Prejudice version? You can tell a lot from how it handles the proposal. Right, I've the already proposal. I need
1: you to know. I've already searched 1980 Pride and Prejudice the proposal. So,
0: yeah, we are we are so that up. is basically gonna let let you know uh, what you're dealing with there. But I just the the Olivier version did not do it for me. This
1: 1980 um, version looks like a Doctor Who episode, so maybe Doctor Who shows up.
0: Maybe good. <laughs> I don't know
1: which Doctor would this be. 1980 Who is Doctor Who? It, <laughs> There's a gap, but I think that's late 80s. Uh, Which is
0: the guy in the cool leather jacket who looked like a soccer player, or maybe more like a rugby Eccleston.
1: player? Eccleston. That's not till, till like two thousand six, okay. two thousand five, two thousand six. I was in
0: college. So there's no. But you know, he is a time traveler, so he could show he up could show in the nineteen eighty Pride and Prejudice.
1: He like absolutely. Well, has, has mm, Doctor Who Jane Austen? That has to have happened. Jane Austen's been in the TARDIS. Uh huh. Yeah. A hundred percent. Uh, she assisted the first Doctor. In defeating a phoenix. (laughs) You know, she would. Yeah, she definitely would. I'm fucking pissed that we didn't get... Did you... mm, Did either of you play the Saints Row games? Yeah. Did you play Saints Row the third? Yeah. Do you remember how it ends? Yeah. Why don't we ever get the Jane Austen Saints Row game?
0: Wait, maybe I don't remember how it ends. It ends with you defeating the fucking GI Joe. Guy. And then,
1: and then, and
0: then what? Oh, sorry, not the third. What? Sorry,
1: four, four, four. Saints no, Road I didn't. Four. I
0: didn't play four because I was kind of done with it the by then.
1: Hey, uh, stop listening to this podcast if you don't want me to spoil Saints Row Four. Bye. We'll, waypoint on Twitter, etc. I'm going to spoil <laughs> this. You haven't seen this. You haven't seen no. the end of Saints Row Four. No. Yeah, I'm going to send you Saints Row Four's ending.
0: Johnny Gat is Wickham.
1: I mean, probably. I could see it. All right, one second. I need to find like, is there like a? Uh, all right, I'm gonna link you to a time stamped video. Yes. yes. And we're gonna put it in our podcast stream. All right. Um.
0: All right. When do I start? Count
1: wait one in. second. Wait one second. Wait one second. There might be a there might be a lead in that we actually need to watch first. I'm a fool. Here's what I just needed. I needed Saints Row Four the movie all cutscenes. All right, here. We there go. we go. So this all second right. one you can start for. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Kada, you can come back now. Okay. The second one you can start at the very beginning, and I'll tell you where to stop it. Uh, I will tell you when to start it. Also, that way. time it with rob rob you let me know when you're ready to go so
0: the beginning of this eight hour
1: video yeah uh uh-huh okay i'm ready uh we have an ad for Fortnite, which is some sort of video game three two one go
3: It is a truth universally acknowledged, that every now and again a situation arises that defies Uh explanation, and so it was with the ascension of the Third Street Saints. When the Saints made their presence known Uh to the world in 2006, they were decried for being pretenders to the throne. The people were confused. Were the saints' sociopathic killing machines hell-bent on destruction? Or puckish rogues living a life of mirth and whimsy? The saints needed clarity of purpose, and so the course was set. More fun, less mercy killing. This simple choice revitalized Uh the saints, transforming them from a degenerate street gang into beloved pop culture icons. Words
1: anyone could say. But even
3: then, the saints were not satisfied. For it's one thing to be revered as a hero. It is another to be a hero. There's a person in a... And that, my friends, is where our Thanos journey our
1: begins. Yeah. Uh-huh. The big, okay, you can pause mm-hmm. here. You can pause. You don't need to see this part. Uh, okay. Then, then what I need is, I believe you can go to the... S- you know, I think it depends on what ending you get. So there's some other narration yeah. similar to that. But you could just load that second video I sent you here.
0: Okay. Um, Let me
1: uh, bring that back up. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, I was just double checking that there was not a third yep. video here. All right. Uh, I am at uh, what is the timestamp you're at, Kato? Six thirty-four. Go yep. ahead and, and ready for six thirty-four. Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is dancing, but it's fading out. Uh, actually, bombs over Baghdad just faded in, and that's pretty good. You can't put this part in uh, because we'll get sued. Actually, leave that much in. We can put that much in. I know, like, three seconds. That's fine.
0: Now there's score. Now there's XP.
1: You've unlocked the Iron Saint costume in the mech suit. uh, And you can change the time of the day inside of the simulation. But what's this?
3: When the novelty of shaping history wore off, the Saints remembered the
1: words of Zinjai. Is this all of them? It's hard to say, Your Excellency. Zinyak was a long time... Achievement unlocked. That, my friends,
4: uh-huh. is how I first met the
1: Saints. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> uh, there's a screen on the screen. There's a woman inside of a tank, and inside of that tank was, uh, was uh, Jane Austen. Uh, so Jane Austen joins the Third Street Saints, and I guess she's in Get Out of Hell or is in How the Saints Save Christmas? She's in the she's okay, before you go to New Hades in get Out of Hell, she is around. But I really wanted to play a whole game where Jane Austen was part of the Third Street Saints. And we didn't get to do that.
0: You think they could have carried that off, though. No. No, I don't think so.
1: But as a narrator, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty
0: good. Well, Well,
1: on that note... That was Emma. Thank you for sticking around. The 11th Doctor said that Jane Austen was, quote, not much of a kisser. Rude! But Clara described Austen as a phenomenal kisser. Wait, who? Clara. Clara Clara Oswald? Please, come on. You know, Clara Oswald. she a... She's one of the companions.
0: Okay. Wait, is there multiple people who made out with Jane Austen and Doctor Who?
1: Yeah, Yeah. Uh uh-huh. She was 41 when she died. Jane was resurrected in the city of the Saved, where she appeared as roughly 35 years old and lived in the Solipsar district. During the Civil War, Jane encouraged her husband, Rax Hallidom to accept Mayor Ignatius' military summons. When Una duplicated Rex during the mission, he worried that Jane would never learn to accept the fact that there were now two of him. Jane and both versions of her husband were consumed by the anonymity and restored to life in the second city of the saved.
0: I'm not sure anyone should be allowed near Jane Austen's memory at this point. I don't know. I I feel –
1: hmm. What's weird is like Jane Austen exists in Doctor Who, right? But like Lizzie Bennet doesn't. Right? Right.
4: This is fictional.
1: I guess that makes sense. But I would rather see him hang out with Lizzie and Darcy and Knightley than Jane. Yeah. This is the problem. Like, we don't, like, I'm not sure we know a ton about
0: Jane Austen's, like, inner life. Like, we have some, like.
1: We know she was a real person and that she kissed Doctor Who. And that's it. Her dad was a uh, priest, a vicar, and she kissed Clara real good. And that's all we know. I read it on the internet.
0: Jane Austen, great novelist, mm-hmm. ally to Doctor Who.
1: Wow. Clara was interrupted by the 12th Doctor during a lesson about Pride and Prejudice when he corrected her about the date of the writing of the novel. I'm glad Doctor Who is just out here mansplaining as a as a, as a vocation. Well, wait.
0: Like, corrected her in what way? Because there's an argument that – She tried to guess about a rendezvous. She wrote it in two stages.
1: She, she tried to guess about a rendezvous between the Doctor and the author. But the former countered that he knew that uh, as he had read her biography in a copy of the book. So she was like – oh, you know when, because y'all were fucking. And he was like, no, of course not. I just read in the book. That's a lie.
0: That's a lie. That sounds, I don't know, Doctor Who sounds like they could get under control.
1: There is a a fiction. Does that happen a lot in Doctor Who? What's that?
0: Where they go out and like romance historical figures?
1: In various ways, yeah. They're time travelers. Okay,
0: travels. that's like a thing they do. Yeah,
1: there's a character here in the uh, or in the hmm, in the novel, Erasing Sherlock, uh, the Doctor Who novel, in which there is a character named Darcy Bennett.
0: <laughs> By the way, I'm just gonna say it. Yeah, front here. Yeah, I don't like Bridget Jones's Diary.
1: I haven't seen it. I hear it's good We should watch it I would
0: I would say you heard wrong <laughs> um, I would I would say That It's like Someone's like People like the People like and know the characters Of Pride and Prejudice I'm just going to put them In this other story But None of these characters have retained a spark of what makes them interesting.
1: I haven't seen it, and I will not be the one to diss it here live on Be Good and Rewatch It, a podcast that you should rate five stars, one star for each awkward pause we've had in the last 90 seconds. <laughs> you can find it on uh-huh. iTunes. Does someone drilling into this room?
0: I heard a squeak like a little mouse. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I'm going to stand away from the room. I hear like a dental drill. No, it's louder
0: than that. Wait, no, that's a phone. Austin, is your phone buzzing? No, that's not a phone. phone It's
1: not my phone. I'm holding my phone. Someone's drilling into this. That was was against the wall somewhere. Hello? hello. We're doing a
3: podcast. Stop drilling.
1: Please.
3: Please.
1: Someone came by and looked in. I wonder if they were like, I wonder if they're in there doing a podcast. (laughs) You can also follow us on Twitter, at twitter.com slash waypoint. Follow me on Twitter at Austin underscore Walker. Where can people find you? Rob.
0: Wondering if this whole detour into Saints Row was the right decision. (laughs) Like,
1: was it the right decision? Do you feel like something has... I told you before we started that something felt off about today. Everything felt a little off.
0: I didn't feel like anything was off until you were like, you know Jane Austen is in Saints Row. And then you didn't have proof of that immediately command, and then it turned into like ten minutes of research. I'm
3: I'm cutting the the gap
1: out. That gap also won't just, a yeah, gap assist.
0: A lot of people have misused Jane Austen's memory, I guess, has been the lesson of these last few minutes.
1: That's true. Um at
0: Rob Zachney.
1: <laughs> find Cotto at a underscore Cato underscore appears. You can find out everything we do at Waypoint.zone come discuss things like Emma and drills being drilled into your room at discourse.zone. Uh, who does which what's the song, Rob? You you've been hosting this way more often than I have been.
0: Nope, I don't know what the song is. I've asked a couple times. I don't remember. Like <laughs> I'm was, glad we've just committed tracks. to just there's three tracks uh-huh. that all came in. Toward the end of last year. Do so we not have we this were written down? You don't have podcasts. this in your doc? The I point wasn't hosting in the initial episode, so Patrick the theme wrote theme stuff theme. down. He the didn't theme. write it down.
1: Oh, this is just an original song yeah. by Mellow. Yeah. Which you can find out more of. Waypoints is slide asleep. There you go. Two mellow. The song
0: on Waypoints is Slide Asleep, which is a great title.
1: Yeah. Mellow Makes uh bandcamp.com or twitter.com slash mellow makes. M E L L O makes. I'm just gonna be in this cadence for the rest of the day. I'm just gonna leave long pauses. Not pregnant. <laughs> Was that Jane Austen
0: getting out of the vat at the end of Saints Row the? Bat, get out of hell. Was that her getting out of the vat?
1: No, she's in. Get out of hell.
0: Yeah, but sorry, but the, sorry, Saints Row the,
1: the, Saints Row Four. Yeah,
0: it ends, and she's like, "That's how I met the Saints." Was that her being awakened from that like Halo sleep chamber? Yes,
1: it's her and a bunch of other time people. Okay. People from time, so she never died. The space alien guy came by and was like, "I love your books. Get in the vat."
0: Oh shit! Good detail here. Do you know that like the Prince Regent was like the biggest yes. Jane Austen stan in this. the world? She hated his fucking guts. Yes,
1: she. The Emma, in fact, was printed with, uh, like a a what do you call it to him? A uh, yeah, like the most grudging dedication. Dedication. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um, but she owned the rights, which is wild. She didn't give up the rights to Emma. She didn't like sell it to a publishing house. She was like, I I got it. I'll publish this and keep the rights forever. Um, and then this was the last book that she published while alive because then the alien showed up and took her to space and put her in a vat. Thankfully, the president, Mr. Saints Row, mm, not necessarily Mr. Saints Row because Saints Row is actually surprisingly good with gender. Uh, President Saints Row. Also, I shouldn't have said Mr. Saints Row because a sitting president you refer to as president, whatever. Presidents, pre, I not even a sitting president. All president presidents, Saint. all presidents get to be. You know what? No, I'm never <laughs> no, I'm never calling that motherfucker President Bush again or President Nixon. That's Mr. It's no, it's nonsense. That's a he's George and he sucks. Fuck off, George. Fuck off, George. Kato keeps reaching well, down to been... hit some buttons, and I th- keep thinking he's just going to turn off the, po- <laughs> the computer. Just like, bop, the end. Austin won't stop. I could do this forever. This I could do. What time is it?
2: You can't filibuster your own podcast. Why?
1: Why can't I do that?
2: God damn
1: it. They're not going to... I want to go home. Oh, it's after. Okay, we should we should end. I didn't realize how <laughs> late it was. That's right. Have a I got great... up
0: at 3.30 this morning.
1: Why? Why? Wow.
0: MK had to uh, catch an early flight, so in solidarity.
1: Yo, that's good. I awakened. That's a good... That's a, I, mean, a, I hope the flight goes well.
0: Well, it was hours ago, and it was short, so presumably it did. Because she's texted a few times.
1: Okay. She wasn't like, this is a bad flight, I'm stuck on a bad flight, they won't let us land. Or like,
0: where are we? Where? Uh, there's an uncanny light outside.
1: Am I being taken by? I think by... we're an alien spaceship. Yeah. yeah. Is that, isn't that Jane Austen in that van? Yeah. Wow, I'm so honored. <laughs> isn't be, that dude from Prey? The original Prey? The original, the first one with the jukebox and the aliens and the butts. holes really. Not so much butts. Have a great... Keanu, okay, how much of this is going to make the final all cut? All of it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it. I think we should keep it as proof... That we need three people on all these podcasts. and <laughs> I can present that. You to, think
0: that's what that proves? You think that's?
1: I think it classy. proves a number of things. Um, I think one of them is my commitment to avant-garde art. I truly, I'm a vanguard of the podcasting <laughs> class. <laughs>
4: the drill is back. Them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's Kato trying to tunnel out of that fucking recording studio. Kato's... <laughs> Kato's digging through the drywall right now as we speak.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this last dive into nonsense. <laughs> Have a great whatever day this is.
0: We'll be back with the Pride and Prejudice episode you were fully expecting to hear.
1: And you got this instead. Congratulations. Bye.
4: Jesus <laughs> Christ. <God>. What? <laughs> what is that noise?
1: I want to live in this place. I suspect they held off work until we were done. Yeah. And then it's now it's after it, yeah, the point at which we should done. be here.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Mm-hmm. Apologies, Kato. <laughs> we, we got on a stream of consciousness rift.
1: No, it's rift. okay.
0: I'm more worried about these
1: yeah. wall things.
0: Is it genuinely genuinely menacing in there? Yeah.
1: yeah, There's hammers. I can't tell where it's. Is it above or or to or the to side? The si- I think it's side.
3: Are they gonna finally knock this wall over like we have, make a bigger room?
1: They would have told us. No, they wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? You, you, I, Vice
0: always keeps you informed. Always.